All right, well, let's get right into it. All right, so I got my buddy Joe on here today. Um, Joe Henry, right? That's your last name, right? That's it. We never really we're talked about it much. Like, when you meet each other, it's all first names for a long time. <laughs> yeah. like, what is your last name? All right, so we got Joe on here, and he's got really interesting stuff going on in all kinds of different realms of art and travel across the world, military experience, and... Um, and then he also brought me some coffee. So explain to what what's going on with the coffee first. So I was watching a previous episode of yours, and I come to find out you're a coffee connoisseur as well. Yes. So I went ahead and uh, whipped up a batch of Bolivia, single origin. Give it a try. Yeah. I'm excited for this. Even like a fancy cup. Oh, that's really smooth. Right? That is really smooth compared to the old uh, Kirkland brand. It's going to have a kick to it, too. So we sit here. We're pretty wired up. We can we can blame Bolivia for this one. Okay. We'll blame Bolivia. They don't get enough heat, I don't <laughs> think. So they can be blamed for the good coffee. Is that is that a common origin? Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the coffee prints like South America, Africa. You've been South around, America. too, a lot of those places yep. anyways. Mm-hmm. So. That's kind of cool in itself. Coffee when you're there. Yeah, I know. Um, like Cuban coffee is big in Florida, like Mm -hmm. Miami area. If you go for like a Cuban blend, it's like that's where like knocks you out. Basically, like knocks you on your feet, (laughs) knocks you off your feet, type of thing. I just want to say that. I remember like when I first moved out here, we were doing all this work in the Keys, and that's when you go from all the Cuban influence down there. Yeah, and so it's like, oh, you want a Cubano or a Cuban coffee or the sandwich? Cuban coffee. I was like, yeah, sure, and was not expecting how much sugar is in Cuban coffee. Yep. Oh my gosh! You'd ask for half sweetness, and you're still, you're still getting rocked. Yeah. So me and you, yours is black as well. I mean, that's I always tell people that's the only right way to have coffee is. But hey, you know the best conversations are had over a cup of coffee. Yes. So. No cream, no sugar, just mm-hmm. black coffee. I mean, I drink uh, an excessive amount. Bronte gets on me because I drink like. A pot almost every day. So is Kristen. She, I do two a day. Like, I'm oh. like, it's so much water. It's my water intake for the day. Yeah. She doesn't like that argument. Yeah, the exact opposite <laughs> of what you should be doing. I, I try to drink salt water in the morning to help with the counterbalance of dehydration uh, of the coffee. Maintain some of your water. Yes. Yeah. So the salt water first thing, tall glass salt water first thing in the morning, helps the lack of jitters because you're not dehydrated as much. Mm-hmm. But... I don't really know. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to really know. No, for no, it's for me. It's completely unhealthy. It's completely just caffeine to maintain all the hobbies and activities and things going on. Yeah, and water is an afterthought when your body finally reminds you. <laughs> so you get it full bean. You grind it from. <laughs> yeah. So this stuff, I and mean, we get we get on a subscription. So you get the coffee within probably two to three days of being roasted, hmm. and then it's just probably like the freshest you can have it. Yeah. You know, if you're not actually sitting out there taking it straight from the machine but dang yeah you get used to the power of it and it's hard to go back i know <laughs> it's kind of like it's like having like a strong energy drink and then going yep. to a weaker one so all we'll of a sudden you're like, the bathroom like twice drowsy yeah it's a small one thankfully so it's not like i'm guzzling you know 20 ounces of coffee mm-hmm. here that should help a little bit so you're getting ready to go overseas though right that's what i wanted to hear yes. about so this i mean this this trip though that's coming up here which is why we had to kind of get this together this week. Yeah. It's actually probably the first time I'm going on a trip just for fun, actually. So one of my good friends that I was in the Marine Corps with is getting married in Bali, Indonesia. And I've done some work out there before, but this is purely a fun trip. Um, so Indonesia will be for the, his wedding. And then shortly after that, um, 
we're waiting on some grants to come through and that will be Malaysia again. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where most of my work is happening right now. Yeah. The grant stuff is really interesting. We talked a little bit about that. I've, I know no side of the scientific grant world where you're applying to get (laughs) monies from not even just the U S government, which surprised me to research wreaths, right? Yeah. yeah, So you have your history, your background in coral studies, right? Correct. So it's actually, so it's what brought me out here. So I did my undergraduate studies in biology, natural sciences, and then uh, took a little break, went into the military for eight years. We'll probably get into that a little bit Just later. a little break. Because it doesn't make any sense to anybody, you know. It's like, oh, you're, you're working towards being a, we just say marine biologist. It's probably the simplest way of saying it. And then I take an eight-year break in the Navy, Marine Corps, and come back. And as I got out, I was given an opportunity to come out here to do my PhD at the University of Florida. And I was like, why not? Like, a, you can't really study reefs in California. or I mean, you can, but you know, we got it right off our coast here. So yeah. uh, it's a nice place to be. And so that's what brought me out here is to do my PhD specifically in uh, kind of how we improve coral restoration. So kind of like, you know, we've talked a little about some of the issues surrounding there, which I'm sure we'll get into more. Later. No, I'd love to hear about yeah. it. I mean, we can get right into it because I like, that's, that's what we're here for. I want to hear about the wreath stuff and then also um, about how it affects how the climate is affecting it because climate is huge in automotive right now. Yeah. Like climate change and the government attack is destroying the automotive industry. And I think a lot of your research is actually probably either supporting or negating what they're saying about what our automotive industry does. Yeah, see, that's that's from this guy that kind of sits in this middle. It's like, hey, I'm a huge car guy. You're like, yeah, building cars. Since we're going to get you a drift car yeah, this week. Like, we're literally going to get a drift car this week. I've got we've got multiple cars at the house. And then there's this <clears throat> there's this other side of me. That's, you know, all about uh, like reef restoration and oceanic type research and stuff like that. So I definitely, you know, these two these two hobbies yeah. definitely kind of conflict with each other in certain areas. So, yeah, that's that's a tough point for me. Well, we love I, what we love, I guess. And it's a hard thing to. Yeah. And I don't expect like, you know, anything to kind of you say something incorrect in either world to support your own interest. I I just hope that the people that read the data interpret it correctly. That's always my worry. Yeah. And that's where you just, you know, you have to be honest with it. And that's what it is. And like, even, I mean, a lot of this just comes down to like personal self questions too. of just who like, um, just like a human nature type situation where it's like, I am super passionate about these cars and building these things. But at the same time, some of these cars and the industry is leading to issues in another yeah. area I'm really passionate about. So, like, there is conflict in me. And uh, so part of me has found my balance, I guess, in trying to contribute to make a difference in that field. So with globally, you know, there's uh, maybe not aware, there's a lot of issues we're having with coral reefs and other systems based on how the climate's changing. Um, and whether we talk about the nature of why that's happening, like, we are seeing these big changes. And Florida mm-hmm. is really just on the front of seeing some of the worst of it. Uh, so here in Florida, you know, we're the only uh, part of the uh, continent of the United States that we have barrier reefs. You know, there's reefs in Hawaii, but if you talk about the United States, we have this fairly extensive reef track that goes all the way down, uh, down the coast of Florida, down the Keys. And that's a reef track we've seen disappear over the last like, 25 to 30 years. Hmm. So you'd imagine this was an area that 
was just covered with coral. You know, reef. It's a huge, huge habitat for fish and other things yeah. that rely on it. And we've lost probably around ninety eight percent of it in just these last like twenty twenty five years. So like it's been twenty five percent in twenty five years. Pretty, yeah, roughly. it's probably more than that. It's like these. You know, you, I started studying this ten years ago, and I'm probably saying those numbers. Yeah, and they slowly changed, so it's now probably closer to thirties. But you can start to say in the eighties, we started to see large declines here in the Keys and. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen or snorkeled or f- scuba dived or like been on a reef before or specifically the Keys. I've been around them a little bit in the Keys, yeah. not too much, very like resorty mm-hmm. type. And I've been around a lot of cold water mostly. Mm-hmm. So we don't get the tropical reefs up where I'm at on Long Island. We get more That's just true. like not a whole lot going kelp. on. <laughs> yeah. But hey, those are still cool though. They're cool, yeah. but they're way different than very like different. your tropical, beautiful reefs that you get on like the keys area but yeah what were you saying so yeah so it's 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 kind of and it's one of those things that's hard to uh kind of imagine how much has changed because it is an environment that that's really out of sight out of mind you know it's not something you see every day and it's doesn't impact you maybe like on a daily basis it's not like looking out here and seeing some of the forest like some of the clear forest being cleared for houses because yeah. it's pretty obvious that's happening kind of out of sight and when you imagine what 98 percent decline looks like it's Basically, just the, the reefs out there have just been so heavily degraded. Can you use, like, overhead camera a lot to see yeah, the so. difference? Because, you know, in New York, the water's so murky. You can't really see what's going on. Like, you get, like, 25-foot visibility, hopefully. Yeah. But and down then, here, you probably get oh man, 100-foot visibility. I tell people, like, I've, I've been diving all over the world for a lot of my life, and the Keys is still one of my favorite places in the world to go really? diving. It is. It's special. And... Um, some of the stuff you'll see there and it really, it really is just a beautiful place. So we, uh, when I think about the Florida Keys, it's, you know, it is, it really is a, like a national monument here in the States, the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. And, uh, it's really is a treasure here for just people that live in the U S to get to come see and experience. So I like, I hate it when I tell my family to get down there as soon as they can, because the state you see it in today is probably not, it's probably better than what it's going to be in 10 years. So, so it's, it's like an actual pressing issue. It's a of huge like, pressing issue that the state's pouring a lot more funds into to actually try and uh, address this. Like recently, what was it? The this, which is also kind of a daunting thing to talk about when you start seeing numbers and like timeline. Yeah, because this gets people. You know, it's uh, the proposal that NOAA came out with. You know, it's kind of the governing body, the federal yeah. side of the things that oversees a lot of uh, the oceanic stuff off our coast and the reefs here. They put this proposal forward that basically said, this is what it's going to take to address the problems we're having here in the Florida Keys. You know, and that's, it was something wild, like $200 million over the course of a hundred years. And 200 million, you know, like may not seem like that much. I actually may be underquoting that if I'm, I think it was was around there and a hundred years plus to actually address this problem. And even then things won't really get back to the place they were. Uh, And you start telling people things like that. Well, so you're telling me the problem we can't even fix, like, in our timeline of my kids and, like, my life and my kids? And that's kind of something, too, that, you know, you're you're doing things that are going to impact generations mm-hmm. forward. So it, it's a it's a pay-it-forward type situation. And right it's now tough that. for a politician to think about anything that's past four or eight years yeah. or even 16 years because that's a completely different realm. Exactly. You can't really make plans for 10, you know— 10 governors down the road because that's going to go out the window pretty quickly. And then a storms like the storms in Florida could ruin 
all of that work pretty quickly. I mean, we were talking about what they're doing on the Skyway. They're putting all those artificial reefs. Like, there's, you know, probably a hundred of them sitting there ready to go in the water that they've been making out of concrete. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of, growing up, I've seen a lot of uh, Army Corps of Engineers come in and try to, like, save erosion places and, like, put sand and pump sand. And it always, like, it's like this massive project and in a year you don't even see what they did. Yeah. And that's, it's, you're right. There's this point where you want to be able to sh- like, you know, especially like in politics, you know, you want to be able to show that like, you did, took an action that had a immediate show, you know, like it, mm-hmm. it showed an impact. And, um, I said a lot of these things, they just corals, they, they, I mean, I don't know much you know about them. Like these are like living animals. They look like rocks, mm-hmm. but they're really a colonial animal. It's related to jellyfish. You know, they can either, split themselves to make a new one or they can like sexually reproduce. But you, you look at this thing that looks like a rock in the water. It's actually a colony of thousands and thousands of individuals living together. So that's why there was get these really extensive reefs. that are just these massive living things. So a reef isn't really interesting because it's an active living thing. That's actually creating the habitat, you know? Hmm. So, uh, and that's not something you just get to replace overnight. You know, it's, some of these corals that we've had down there, they're thousands of years old. And we've um, we've had coral reefs down here for like hundreds of thousands of years. Can you yeah. like, so like ones, you know, 200 feet away, can you like, do they really like still like a tree almost? Like something happened at one root? And yeah, it's, so it's they like can, one they'll split, which, oh, it's kind of cool. Plant Actually, almost? We got some show and tell. Oh, okay, I'm in. So a few things are brought. Yeah, we got right into the coral reef discussion because that's a very interesting one to me. Yeah, it's not something you probably, I mean. I don't know all that many people that know much about it. All right, so what we have here, this is a staghorn coral skeleton. So here in Florida, we have uh, not, like, not compared to the Indo-Pacific, we we don't have that many coral species, but uh, we we do have quite a few. And this is probably one of the main ones that we used to have in its most abundant here in the Keys. Mm -hmm. So this and probably elkhorn coral were probably two of the most dominant corals that we used to have. And these are the ones that have gone by almost 98%. And these are the ones that they get together and form massive thickets, like bigger than this room, you know, colonies intertwined together. And are these the ones that like other ones hook onto, I guess? The like other kind of stuff. And yeah, I guess... I'm I'm thinking of like animals living in this as well. Exactly. All the little fish that you see, like Finding Nemo, like fish living in the coral, and how like I get would they play a massive role in keeping this like up, like a symbiotic relationship? I guess you could say like. Yeah. So the, okay. So this. Uh, so I mean, this is a really small. One. This is actually one I grew in the lab. So we are part of my research was growing them in land-based facilities and seeing hmm. how they would perform once taken back out into the ocean. And uh, that was kind of part of part of my PhD research, and so this is one that I grew in the lab uh, that didn't make it back out in the field. So I brought it with brought it back with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can imagine this this coral here is maybe about a year and a half old, uh, but it will get and when it's healthy, these things these things yeah. are massive. So you know? it took a year and a half to grow like that, right? To that size, and that's actually pretty quick. You know, yeah. in the lab they have some pretty ideal conditions we expose them to, uh, but they can go pretty quickly in the wild as well. But you can imagine kind of like what you just noticed is just how uh, like kind of complicated this structure is, you know, with the corals. They, they create all this habitat. And that's kind of one of the big things, the value that they provide 
is they create this network of complex habitat that juvenile fish and other things need for their home. So when we talk about other associated uh, issues here in Florida, it's you'll see the impacts on the fishing industry. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have as many fish because this is where the juvenile fish get their start. When you lose the habitat, you know, it's a trickle-down effect. So you start, you lose the habitat, you lose the habitat for the juvenile fish to grow up in, and then the other things that maybe like the sharks, the things that come in, like, you know, there's not as much fish there, we'll stop seeing the sharks, or just really cascading effects on different parts of that whole complex so would that like you know shark attacks are pretty rampant in florida and i think this time of year there's like i've seen some videos of like hammerheads and stuff yeah less of this means they're probably coming more to where people would be because there's less fish and less coral for those big sharks to kind of hang around at and try to get fish so then they come into shore yeah so i mean Florida is a super sharky place to begin with. Yeah. So like, <laughs> that's one fun thing about here. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I mean, like two different beaches in Florida are like one and two for shark attacks. Shark bite capitals of the world. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, Clearwater Beach is pretty high up there. And then on the other coast, um, Valrico area, or uh, one of those on the other coast of Florida is pretty high. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, so you can see like looking at that one. You notice all those little, those little like little cup looking things. Mm-hmm. So those are those are called coralites, and that's the individual coral that I talked about. And so every single one of those little thumbs that comes off of that is an individual that can break off and then form a new colony at some point. So yeah, so if you kind of picture the big picture, of this is like how important these things are for building structure. And then the kind of issues we're having right now, kind of what you hit on, you're talking about. Uh, maybe some of the things that actually help to secure these things to the floor. Because mm-hmm. uh, these things, they'll naturally cement themselves down as they grow and they calcify. Uh, because a lot of the reef that we have here, it is just corals on top of coral. Like all that calcium carbonate seafloor is really just get like corals that have died or grown on top of each other over time and form the entire like Florida reef track. So it's just stacks, basically, stacks just piles stacks of it. Stacks of corals. And... Um, so what's killing it though do you think the higher temperatures or more pollution yeah you know it's you know obviously like the issues we're having with higher temperatures in our water is a huge stressor and what we're seeing typically is like you know nothing really happens in a vacuum it's hard to say it's just like these one things uh corals specifically are can be pretty these ones can be pretty very low tolerance to any type of change uh so I would say it's like a it's a it's it's a multitude of factors that are kind of coming in and impacting the corals that are causing the issues we're having here. So mm-hmm. one of them is definitely pollution. You know, Florida is a giant watershed as things kind of come through the center of the state, sweep south through the Everglades and then into the Keys, and we just get those really high nutrient waters from that. Whereas corals tend to like really nutrient poor water, so pretty clear, uh, not like not a lot of nutrients in the water. And so when you get a lot of nutrients in the water. That can stress them out. And then also you combine you combine that with uh, like high temperatures, another stressor, and it just kind yeah. of, they stack until the corals hit their tipping point. And one thing that makes corals really interesting, which kind of how these things tie in, is uh, their symbionts. So we, we, we corals have this, or like these, this algae that lives with them in their tissue. So it's a symbiotic relationship. The coral provides the house, basically, and the algae that lives inside, along with a whole suite of other microorganisms, actually provide a lot of the food for the coral. 
So just like they have these plants that live in their tissue that photosynthesize the sun, yeah. which results in the sugars from that process, and that provides foods for the corals. So when it gets really hot, high temperatures, high light intensity, this algae that lives inside of them just decides, like, this is too much, I'm out of here, and they leave, and that's called coral bleaching. So that's probably something you've heard a lot about on the news or just on yeah, the internet the bleaching. before is bleaching. Yep. And so a coral will look clear, and when it has it'll kind of look like this when it bleaches. But it has that color. All the colors that coral have is because of the algae that lives in their tissue. So when they get stressed out and the corals and the algae leaves, you get left with this white skeleton-looking thing, and that's a bleached coral. So what color was this originally then? Was uh, it always white or like was it like – Healthy, they're an orangish-brown okay. color. And so corals can, you know, if, they, if conditions are right, they can recover and get that algae back. But usually it's like a death sentence. You know, it's like once they fully bleach, yeah. it's – Really high likelihood they're not gonna they're not gonna make it. So without like this is probably also what protected Florida coast from storms as well. Right. Like with less coral kind of stopping the big waves from coming in as hard. Shoot, I think you read up on this before I even came on the show, man. No, I've I've always <laughs> I actually didn't do any research. It was good. You would think. Yeah, yeah. No, that's ex- no, that's exactly right. But that's I just I, I've always been interested in the ocean and all that stuff and. The ocean always, to me, was, like, growing up on it, I always watched so much ocean, like, preservation and, like, oh, we got to save the dunes and stuff because mm-hmm. the ocean waves and we put rocks and stuff. And it always felt so useless to me mm-hmm. because the ocean was just so powerful that, like, we would spend, like, it's it like would Jeff take, Goldblum. like, life finds a way. It would take, like, yeah. a month <laughs> to put, like, a bunch of rocks on the on the coastline and then a storm would take them all away yeah. like that. And I was just like, this is so useless. Like, the ocean is so much stronger than our freaking stupid bulldozers. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and I mean, I mean, you know, like, you that's kind of what you hear is most common. It's like, you know, let's just put some artificial structures out there mm-hmm. as reefs or as, like, wave breaks, natural barriers. And there is more research going on on that here in Florida specifically. But that's one of the biggest things that corals provided is these reefs were natural storm yeah. breaks for the coast. So now the Keys and the eastern coast of Florida, which had these massive reef networks, now loses um, like their first protection barrier from this big storm activity. So with that stuff gone, you know, the, just the coastline, there's more coastal erosion. Like I think if you head south of, I don't know Florida super well, was like north of Miami south of Port St. Lucie or some of that area, you'll start to see coastline where the houses are just chipped away yep. and the coast is taken off. And, you know, it's just the the natural storm protection that the corals provided is not there anymore. So now we're trying to figure out how to replace that that function. So this probably isn't even, like, time frame-wise, but do you see it popping up anywhere new? So, like, yeah, Florida may have gotten too hot, but maybe, like, the coast of, like, Georgia or north carolina or south carolina like it starts to pop up there because now it that water is like ripe for coral or is it just not even long enough at this point um are you sorry as far as like or would we start new, seeing coral new start to blooms yeah uh, starting to work its way north probably not so one of the big issues we're having here in florida is like the populations are so low they can't reproduce on their own pretty much anymore because man we're, we're talking some serious coral on this this like yeah, show right now. I know like, this is this is this. Hopefully, is, you guys are interested. The first twenty gonna, minutes have been. Uh, if you have a coffee conversation at home about corals, yeah, this is this is getting deep. Yeah, if you um, live in Florida, this is probably interesting. <laughs> so yeah, so corals, you know, they they can fragment themselves, and like you imagine a storm, it breaks a piece off, it rolls yep. down, wedges itself in a piece of rock, and then it 
grows into a colony. That's one way it, it uh, reproduces. Uh, but uh, the sexual propagation where like they actually spawn. So these corals uh, will be male and female where like they'll have these egg bundles that will go up, like they'll release once a year. So you can imagine like this is kind of a big ordeal. So like once a year, it's like the first full moon in August. Oh, Every gosh. coral has a broadcast spawning event. It's like, well, by species. So mm-hmm. it's like, like, you know, we've got this timed out pretty well now, but it's like first full moon in August at two hours past the sun, like the moon, like moon rise, all the corals spawn at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty amazing thing. So we've kind of learned that tr- corals have a, like a lunar s- solar, like temporal, like trigger to actually spawn. Interesting. And so coming kind of back to what that means is like, so when they spawn, they release all these eggs up into the water column and they drift. And so they'll fertilize on the water surface, drift to a different location, settle down as like a newly fertilized coral and then grow a new colony. Hmm. But the issue being now is that, you know, they don't want to self-fertilize. Like that's, that's not good. You need to be able to mix with. So you don't it gets like a little yourself. diversity yeah, you need in the, the bloodline. Like, cause you know, genetics 101, it's yeah. not good to be having kids with your sister. Like yep. we've learned that doesn't end well down the line things problems start arising it's the same thing with corals you know we want you want to mix but you can imagine that back in the day when there was tens of thousands of different think of like we say genotypes or like different individuals like you and i are a different genotype you know Mm -hmm. say back in the day there was tens of thousands of different ones now i think we're down to uh, i think it was like i want like a few years ago we were down to like 52 in the keys so like imagine if there's i was it was really low imagine like yeah only 50 people left in your population mm-hmm. in your area and you're all spread out. And so you spawn in St. Augustine mm-hmm. and there's no corals up there. <laughs> you spawn there off Miami, but the only other one closer to you is all the way down in like marathon. They're never going to get together. And so we call that like, fun- like functionally, they cannot actually reproduce in the wild anymore because they can't actually meet up. So the potential for them to migrate, you know, on their own has been lost. Yeah. So that's why we have to do... Especially like, when the Gulf Stream goes kind of... Yeah, so they tend to shoot south. Yeah. So that's called assisted migration. So that is a that is a concept that's been toyed around with in, the, in my field, mm-hmm. where we actually take corals and we start to move them further north, where potentially the water's a little colder, you know, it's more like climate's a little, like, you know, the environment's a little bit better for them, and see how they do. So that's... But that is a way... That is something that's been talked about, is mm-hmm. like, yeah, can we move? But that... that you know, scientists like we one person comes up with an idea and there's a million others to be like, that's a terrible idea because this, this and this. And then we all yell at each other for a long time. Well, any kind of human intervention is always kind of scary yeah. because yeah. everybody knows that you try to solve one problem and you create five others. Exactly. That nature probably would have just solved given enough time. Right. But we don't really have time because everybody wants to see something happen in their small existence of a lifetime that we all have. I got 50 years. I want to see. I want to see some change. I want to see results. And then it's like, well, now I got to do something quick and hasty. And yeah, here's a, here's an organism that has been around for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, that evolves very slowly. And we're trying to basically ramp up. Yes. It's cycle where we're like, we're spawning these things in labs under manipulated conditions to make them think it's the second full moon or the Mm -hmm. first full moon in August, you know? So there's a lot of research going on to this because this problem is happening all over the world. Like, I mean, I, a lot of my dissertation research focused on here in Florida, but uh, the other half of it was in Malaysia and the Indo-Pacific region uh, because they're facing similar issues, but they probably have 
five percent of five percent of the funds. You know, here in the U.S., there's even though you'd probably say you gave like a million dollars to a project, it's really not that much in the big scheme of mm-hmm. things for like what's being asked. Yeah, I mean, a million dollars goes quick once you pay a couple people. Yeah, it's it's not really that much money in the big scheme of things for here. But that's like, but you know, like you know, in the U.S., it's not hard to get that kind of budget. Whereas if you're working in Malaysia, there are some of the other parts of the world, they just want it to be done for out of your pocket. Like, mm-hmm. it's, like it's a passion project. So that's why some of my research in Malaysia is really focusing on how do we uh, work with basic tools like, and really certain species to improve the process. Uh, so, yeah, and it's going to be something that's probably not going to be fixed in my timeline, but yeah, you it can is. Put your dent in it. I'll do. <laughs> Because, like, yeah, the big, the big focus right now is restoration, right? So it's like, oh, well, let's just start restoring corals. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's – we, it, you know, it's also kind of turned into an agricultural operation where you're growing corals in ocean-based nurseries. You're growing corals on land, and you're taking these things back out just to try and increase the volume of what's there. But the, the analogy has been given that coral restoration is really just like planting trees in a burning forest. Like, are you just wasting time and money doing this? Yeah. And that's why you, I think coral restoration can be actually pretty damaging towards like the issue of what's going on. Cause a lot of the, the mindset is, well, when we run into a problem in our society or someone's like, can we just science our way out of this? Can we just figure out a way to get around it? So we, maybe we don't have to change maybe our lifestyles, but we can fix the problem. We don't like, you know, we don't have to really address what's causing the problem. Mm-hmm. We can just fix it by figuring out. A solution or science, like I say, science our way through it. Is there anywhere that it's not getting depleted, like that you can study, like, oh, it's still good here, or because pollution in the ocean is so widespread, it instantly goes everywhere? It's not like groundwater pollution on land. Like, once you pollute the ocean, it's kind of starts to dilute to everywhere. I would imagine the microplastics in the ocean aren't great for them. <laughs> yeah, we're all just drinking plastic these days. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> we're all just sucking down plastic and everything. It's cup. like a credit card a week or something <laughs> crazy. <laughs> yep. I love me some plastic in the morning. You got to eat a little bit of microplastics every day. <laughs> we'll find out a reason that's good for our health at some point. Somebody will eventually. Somebody like you, a scientist, will get paid to say why it's fine. To eat a little bit of plastic. That's that's a scary thing, too, is, like, you know, there are a lot of science. Like, I've been approached in opportunities like that where it's like, hey, come work for us. Mm-hmm. We will pay you a really good salary. Play ball. Really good salary, but you need to play ball. And, you, like, you realize you're working for an oil company. Yeah. And it's and it's and when you look at this, the agreements, it's like you can't say A, B, C, D. You know, it's just like. Have you ever had to return a forgotten bag of adult play toys to a pair of sweet old grandparents? Or have you spent your summer cleaning up protein spills at an amusement park? How about going to work every day in a flea-infested casino? Hopefully you haven't, but our guests have. Welcome to the Insiders Podcast. Each episode, we bring you an explicit account from a hotel and hospitality industry insider. To listen to these stories and more, go to theinsiders.com to subscribe. That's theinsiders, I-N-N-S-I-D-E-R-S.com. It's pretty clear what's going on. In a couple on. weeks. The, how the BP oil spill is actually good yeah. for the environment. So it's... Some crazy stuff like that where you so have to like... And I mean, you take someone like myself, or, you know, who's been in school for 12 years after high school, and you get into the sciences. And like I said, funding in the sciences is really tough. It's super competitive. Like mm-hmm. We talked about writing grants. You can spend three, four months more writing a grant for, say, $100,000, right, to fund a... 
two-year project. And that's not a lot to ask for, you know, for a two-year project plus your salary and expenses. And then you'll spend four months working on this thing and then you don't get it. And mm-hmm. it's like the unknown of like pouring yourself into something for months and then not even having the return is really hard. And that happens a lot. Like this grant that I told you, I'm wait- we were supposed to hear back a few days ago, mm-hmm. which is basically my research for the next three years. They just haven't got back to anybody yet. But uh, it's a project we've been writing up over the last year and a half to do. And I think we made it We made it into the – it was like a 200-people pool. Then it made it to about 20 people, and they're only going to take maybe 12. So, you know, like we could find and out – who's that, trying to – like it's not the U.S. that you sent that yeah, offer this, to, right? This, this is a group out of uh, – I want to I say it's – I always forget whether they're in Dubai or mm-hmm. – I think it's Dubai. They're out of Dubai. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a big, not it's like a, a U.S.-based money right. that's going to this. And you're trying to study overseas in Malaysia with this grant? Yeah. Okay. So it's all – to people sitting in the U.S. all sounds very far away and yeah. very, like, <laughs> very crazy. Yeah. So it's – there's yeah, this is a this is a group out of uh, Dubai, I believe is what it is, that's, that's putting these funds together. And to fund, like, that's my project. So we could find out we didn't get it. And then you've invested all this time. Yeah. I mean, usually you just try and find a different grant, but it's really hard to stay sustainable, like, be sustainable in this field because funding is hit or miss. And um, Are you worried that the person that you're sending this grant to may not fully understand like you're sending this proposal to somebody that may not fully grasp at all or even be able to in some way interpret what they're what you're trying to do oh yeah i've had grants where like i've sent them in and i've gotten denied on and they come back and the person's like we denied you because like this reason this reason this reason's like what like this is 100 percent false like these things do exist and this yeah. is written on page like two and it was, it was like in bold and they're like you didn't add this and it's there and so you waited a year on something that somebody just probably breezed over yep. denied and change the course of your life for two, three, like it's just, I imagine it like the TikTok thing when he was in front of Congress and he's like, Congress is like, does it connect to my Wi-Fi? Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, yeah, it uses Wi-Fi. Like, what do you mean? And they're just asking like these, like they don't make sense because they don't understand what they're even looking at. And that's what I worry is like, somebody doesn't understand what they're looking at that has money to hand out for research a freaking baseball field like you know like the same person is deciding like random things yeah. that they're way underqualified to do and i mean there's there i mean, in in their defense there they do bring on panels of like experts so it's yeah. it's not just joe schmo like sitting there like being like mm-hmm. no yes no yes like no they they get reviewed are they i'm sure there are people but like you also like with the sciences and like especially like with a phd you know you're very specific in your knowledge and it's like somebody would look at me. It's like, oh, Joe, you have a PhD in like ocean sciences, right? And like, yeah, it's like, oh, so you must be able to name like every fish in the world. And I was like, I bet you there's high schoolers out there that can name more fish here in Florida than I can. Yeah. Like, you know, you find a fisherman. Yeah. You're like, I guarantee you, I don't know as much as that stuff. That's like, you know, our knowledge gets really funneled into a very specific mm-hmm. points. Like, you know, like my research focused on improving global restoration processes for like these corals. And so I can tell you a whole lot about that. But, you know, it's it's pretty specific. And uh, when you get a bunch of people who are very specific, 
and you start telling them like, oh, you don't know your field. It's like, you know, that's yeah. when you start to butt heads on things. So this is where a lot of people may <laughs> end up disliking you. If the Florida state government government came to you and they were like, hey, you know, mini season down in the keys. I think we're killing too many. Should we do away with it? Should we stop it for a couple of years? Because that's like a Florida hold true. Hey, man, I've been down there during mini season. The thing with mini season, just like I'm more afraid of getting hit by a boat. They get a lot or, of people down there. Yeah, just like people get crazy during mini season. I'm like, I think like I'm a big fisherman. Mm-hmm. I love being in the water. I love lobstering. And, you know, when it comes to the like the guidelines that are set forth by the state as far as fishing regulations, just follow it. You know, like the numbers have some science behind them and they're. Yeah. Like they're they change, but you know they're they're changing year to year based on uh, like what stocks are like and what's going on, and it, I mean just follow just follow the guidelines mm-hmm. and enjoy fishing. Like go yeah. catch some lobster. Like it's I mean some of us we enjoy the reef just to see it, but the reefs have other benefits beyond just seeing them. You know we can fish them. We can we can enjoy them for these other reasons. And I said I love I love going down during mini season. I love lobstering. I don't like the way mini season makes people act because like I said, I probably see more fights break out down in the keys during mini season. Well, than, people get their whole quota in like 20 minutes too. Oh, everybody knows their spots. And yep. yeah, if you, if you don't know your spots then you're wasting your time down there, but yeah. And that's, and that's when it comes to like the guidelines here, all I say is just follow them. You know, there's, they're there for a reason and yeah. they're, they're there to help balance things out. So I grew up in a fishing community and there was like, it was always a, battle between the fishermen and the uh, legislators like yeah. they were always trying to stop how many you can get and constantly was always the thing of like you're ruining the community because you know it you can only show up with one tuna a season yeah. like that's gonna like you can't run a fishing boat off of something like that mm-hmm. so those problems were always constant my dad was a lobsterman growing up like setting traps mm-hmm. and he would even tell me stories of they would get their quota in fish and a lot of people would take their quota in fish and they would go offshore and there would be a different country's vessel sitting there that would get your quota, buy it from you, and then you could get your quota and bring it into shore. So you double That's up. That's happening all the time. You know? Yeah, like it's crazy, like this this world of like, he said it was a Chinese boat, but I, I could have been anything, like yeah. just off in international waters, you'd go hand them a whole amount of fish and then you'd go get your quota. So you'd, you'd be doubling down and they forced him to do that basically because you couldn't make enough off of just your quota. So instead of our community getting all those fish, half of them would be gone. Yeah. And kind of push, pushed you into a weird spot. It's tough when, you know, not everybody plays by the rules and it's, yeah, it's hard to be, uh, (laughs) it's, it's a tough topic. The fishing sure. world is crazy like that because yeah. people are always like stealing fish basically where you're not legally allowed to catch that fish that time of year. Are you a car enthusiast looking for an exciting new podcast to listen to? Check out the Test Drive podcast hosted by Lebo Dead. This podcast is packed with discussions about some of the most iconic vehicles in automotive history and inside knowledge from behind the scenes. From the Mustang to the Camaro, we cover it all. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. Listen to Test Drive on your favorite podcast app today. Yeah, it's. I've always tried to be really good about it. I know I've seen it out there happen, and 
probably happens at restaurants more than people realize yeah. too. Like if you go downtown to a restaurant that serves fish, I bet you some of those were caught illegally. Yeah, seasoned or yeah. There's like in the was it the Gulf side when what was it is it here where like grouper got shut down, season got shut down early because like the commercial side collected too much and so all the like all the people that were just out there fishing like me couldn't catch like they cut the season off short it's like what the heck yeah (laughs) bounce those quotas so that like the recreational fishermen can actually have a full season and commercial can't just like fish it out way before us is it weird that some fish are like kind of depleting so much that they start to make a twist on other fish like oh you know like i feel like they're adding fish that we can eat more and more because the quotas on the good fish that everybody wants are starting to be up. So yeah. now fish that nobody really wanted to eat 10 years ago is are, now coming back. Cause it's like been yeah. stocked based to degree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had the whole, the whole fishing side of things like, so in my lab at the university of Florida, we worked out of Apollo beach and the, mm-hmm. they had the tropical aquaculture lab. Yep. Uh, I guess that's technically Ruskin. Uh, up where all the manatees hang out yeah so at the you know like the whole manatee viewing center yeah and right next to it they expanded it yeah there's a power well that's tico (laughs) that's why it's so warm the water (laughs) yeah so they all hang out there and then next to it there's the center for conservation Mm -hmm. that's like a collaboration with the florida aquarium and the university of florida and tico that's where i did my four years that was my office was out of there and then we had the in ruskin we had the tropical aquaculture lab or where they did a lot of ornamental stuff or like a lot of stuff for restocking too. So those are like all the fish experts for the yeah. state. So every time I walked in there, it was just all fish and mm-hmm. this conversation. And it was just like, you know, like, yep. Hey man, talk corals. All good. Like you start talking fish. You're out yeah. Of the game. Cause there's the two kind of fish too. There's the wreath style fish, like the ornamentals. And this yeah. Thing, like like something people. you'd put in a, in yeah. like a fish tank. And mm-hmm. then there's like the game fish game for, fish. Yeah. yeah which are two completely different worlds in themselves. Yeah, I guess Tao is more ornamental when I think about it. But yeah, it's it's a whole world, man. Mm-hmm. It's it's there's a lot going on for sure. Um, yeah, and you've yeah. been diving all over the world to see some of the cool stuff that's under there. And you were talking about your 360 video stuff, which is really cool. Yeah, so actually I brought the I was going to show you some of the stuff cuz 360, I mean, it's it's coming, it's been around for a while. Like I think VR just had big, a, a bloom. Big bloom, and that's kind of like we saw that coming is that, I mean, like these headsets, 360 headsets been around for a minute. Uh, but, you know, once Apple enters the game, yeah, I don't know if they wanted to enter the game with a $3,500 headset, which... I nobody... think it already <laughs> flopped. Yeah. I think there was, they were estimating like 3.5 million pre-orders, and it did like 0.9. Yeah, I think their stocks dropped that day. Like, yeah. So I was like, oh, dang. I was watching it. Like, I had both up. I had the <laughs> stock up, and I was watching, like, the unveil. And you could see it kind of, like, ticking with the unveil. Yep. Well, it was like, I was so excited because one, one of the grants I'm, I'm on right now is with the Dutch. And we're working on building some devices to go up in the North Sea to put mm-hmm. on reefs to basically collect data without us even there. So we'll drop this probably device that's half the size of this table on the reef, and it will collect data uh, anything from like, you know, temperature and eDNA, which we talked about where it's like you can take a small sample of water and it can figure out almost like everything that's in the area, mm-hmm. just like fish, because you know, like fish sheds scales and other things. So you can actually kind of figure out just from a small sample of water what's been in the area or what's there. Yeah. And then part of my part of my part of that project was to develop a 360 camera that can live stream on the device. 
and basically be used for education and observation. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of there's a lot of complex things that are come with that to make it work, but that's the grant that we have going through right now to do this research in the North Sea. And kind of what made me excited about that is, you know, VR was really just, or like 360 VR stuff was really just kind of on the edge of taking off. And we knew that probably once Apple entered the game, that it was going to really help boost that, that kind yep. of market. And so Triton, which is uh, my company, we wanted to start doing 360 early. So we jumped on doing underwater 360. Uh, one of my good buddies like actually makes these domes that you can create some pretty quality footage underwater with. Yeah. And so he started, he, him and I started working together. And so I, he hooked me up with some stuff. And so we just started filming all over the place. Like we said, we just got back from Africa, did some filming down there for a group and then Malaysia earlier. Uh, so, yeah. So that being said, like we, we knew the tech was like really kind of on the edge. So when, when, when Apple released theirs, I sat there and watched that keynote, like, Oh, come on, here it comes. And this is going to be the thing that like, you know, pushes us over. And then they get to their big demo and I was like, Oh, I wasn't really looking for an augmented reality because mm-hmm. I wasn't, uh, the AR stuff is, it's like, it has its place. But I think it's very gimmicky a little bit. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm just going to use a computer. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't need a screen in my screen that hovers. Like I'm just yeah. going to use a computer. I have two monitors already and they work great. Yeah. They were <laughs> so, cheap. <laughs> I saw that. I'm like, ah, and then all the things that they were talking about were going to be really like cutting edge stuff really is kind of already out there in like Oculus, you know, yeah. some of those platforms I'm like, oh, that's, that's really nothing crazy new. I just think nobody that's done it before has the hardware knowledge that Apple does. Yeah. Where like people are like Google did it and Facebook. And I'm like, yeah, but like what other hardware does either of those have? Mm-hmm. That is impressive. Like Google has nothing else besides like an attempt of a phone and an attempt of Google Glass. And no, that's it. Like that's but Apple brings this level of like their refinement. Their, chips, their technology is yeah. good. And it can like so and we talk about some of the resolutions of those screens and what mm-hmm. they need to be at. Because, you know, when you're putting a screen two inches from your eyes, if it's – you're going to see these pixels. You're like, you know, you can have yeah. a 4K screen, but if you're Basically staring at it – Basically shining a light into your eyeball. Yeah, it's, you, it's, you're going to notice it's not as clear as the um, thing out there. But uh, – so, yeah, it's like watch. It's like, okay, this is this is this can be good. This can be good. And then you get to the end. It's like $3,500. like, and now it's not accessible to people. Yep. And that's where I'm like – you lost them. Like Meta was, or Meta now, like when Oculus first came out, they were so smart. They dropped those headsets. I think they had lost money on them because they were selling like Oculus 2 for, I want to say it was like 250 bucks when they first came out. Like it was cheap. Mm-hmm. And you could, it's like, you know, that was consumer level. Like you could buy this and have a nice VR headset. And a lot of people could get into this. I think it's very methodical of, they set this price, and now I think the phones are going to creep up more. Mm. I think the phones are going to start to close that gap. Like because they wanted that something like, to kind of push other things higher? Yeah, because now when you look at a $2,000 phone in a year and a half, you're be like, well, it's not a $3,500 headset. Yep. But it's, a, it's the ability to close that gap. Yep. And without something really expensive, you can't have something that gets to it. Yeah, because like once it goes up too, it never comes back. No, and the phones realistically, I mean, the amount of use that they get a two thousand dollar phone isn't going to make you not buy the phone. It's no. like you're going to have to. Yeah, you're just you're just slowly slowly get more and more used to those prices. Where, mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 just to make it's us a very ready gradual for it. conditioning to yes. make us accept 
higher, higher prices. Because I remember when the first iPhone came out, it was like $600 was crazy, like absolutely insane. Yeah, I was like, nobody will buy that. Yeah. And now everybody has one. Yep. I got one. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> got me. Yeah, I mean, that's how it goes. It's not like you're not going to buy it. Well, yeah. I did bring my Oculus. If you want to see what some of our underwater 360 looks like. I will do that towards At the end. At some point, yeah. We'll do that towards the end because I do want to watch some of that. But I don't want to get queasy. Oh, no. This, <laughs> Yeah, so had Cooper over and he raced on my simulator. And I tried to warn him, like, hey, first timers, like, this doesn't go well. Yeah. And that's kind of how it went. <laughs> how was that for you, Cooper? It was, it was good. Bronte was like, you don't look so good. I'm like, I'm fine. Stop yeah. asking me. I'm fine. I'm fine. She was just like, you look pale. I'm like, yeah, I just need some sunlight. <laughs> I just, I just need to not have been doing that for the last. Exactly. I was like, I think I stopped at the right time. Yeah. I think if I waited any longer, it would have been a little worse. But you got better. Yeah. I yeah. Know. See, you just have to do that probably like four more times, and reps. then you won't get sick again. It's just reps. Yeah. It's and it's. it's you try to explain that to me. It's like, oh no, just you know, you just got to be sick probably three more hours, and then yeah. you won't get sick again. It's like people on boats. Just probably. reps. It takes time. These ones. It's like yeah, the video with Triton that we're doing with this three sixty. Uh, so we have a lot of underwater 360 content, yeah. and that's something we've had to be really aware of, is that, you know, VR technology is not user-friendly to everybody. Some people put those things on, they have a terrible experience the first time, and they never <laughs> want to touch it again because they get sick. And so, especially when you're working underwater where you get a lot of water movement, last thing you want to do is sitting still, and then your headset's doing one of these in the camera, and you think that's that's going to make you really sick. Yep. So we've had to basically start inventing underwater tripods to really stabilize footage. So the footage I have here was for a project I did in Kenya. So we went out there with a nonprofit that wanted us to film their restoration projects, their reef sites, and then take that footage to the villages and like the communities there uh, in Southern Kenya and show people what the reefs look like. Cause some of the people there have never seen, never been underwater, never seen a reef, lived on the beach their whole life, but like they yeah. just don't go in the water. And so we wanted to show them that. So we brought we brought stuff out there to anchor cameras to the ground, get things as stationary as possible. And what came out of it was just as beautiful shots, like you're just standing there. Mm -hmm. And because that's the experience and that's the way the footage looks, you're not getting sick. You know, you can actually enjoy it. And we we put down some rough cuts, took them to some of the people to see. And it was just like one of the best moments of my life is seeing some of these people just like start to tear up and just just so emotional. It's like see fish. Like right. people that live fifty feet from no, the water I've their never whole life. Seen, I've never seen these fish before yeah, alive. That's wild. You know, I've never so it's and grown men, you know, like we were really just like trying to be like really tough. And I remember mm -hmm. like I'd give them the headset and they'd sit there cross armed and I was like, Hey, uh, you actually need like use the controller to like point at things and they'd be like begrudging they're like, oh, okay, fine. Like the village chief, you know, or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like, and he's just like, you know, first of all, VR tech is something none of them have seen. So this is already kind of like a... You already blew their mind moment. once. Yeah, it's already yeah. a low moment. They're like, okay. Put this headset on. And then you flip on the footage, and all of a sudden they're surrounded by a school of, like, fish. And, and they're just like, what? And, you know, like, they're freaking out. Yeah. Like, someone's like, I shouldn't be able to breathe right now. It's just like, because so your brain, you know, you see these things, and your brain doesn't necessarily know the difference between being underwater once you're seeing... Like, you know you're just seeing a big video, but when it immerses mm -hmm. all your senses... Sometimes the brain will have like this panic mode, like, what's happening? It's just too overwhelming. So then you get these big tough guys that would just slowly crack a smile and then be like, oh, that's pretty cool. I guess. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they actually so start like, to like come around and yeah. like, and, yeah, that's funny because like, right, you get to really convince somebody 
but even showing them the VR, even people in the US, there's still a lot of people that wouldn't really understand or even have seen VR. I remember the first time I saw it was like way long ago. And it was a phone that just had split screen. Yeah, like the and Google you, like, Cardboard. Put it into the yeah. thing. Yeah. That was like the first introduction to it. And that like kind of didn't really take off as much as you would think it would have also. Yeah. Because it was so cheap. It was. It was already on your phone. And you and YouTube videos still support that. Mm-hmm. Like you can watch any YouTube video like that. I don't know. That was a weird thing. So you go underwater with this mechanism that can do 360 video. Yeah. And is this like the 360 where if you turn... Or is this like a 360 video of like somebody just swimming? Uh, I like to set the cameras. And so, you know, they film in full spherical space. Mm-hmm. So I set the cameras because like I said, whenever you're moving a camera, usually it caught in like, say you're sitting stationary. Yeah. You're going to be like, oh, it's not going to feel good because your, your body doesn't feel like it's, mm-hmm. it's like your brain gets, you get queasy. Uh, so I like to set them. And then, yeah, so it's filming in all directions. And then that way, when you get into the experience, like I'll show you later. You can you can stand up. You can look around. It's as if you're there, and you're trying to take out any other signs of like camera equipment in it. So when you look down, all you see is like the reef. You look out. There's nothing to yeah. impede your view. You're just in the moment, and that's kind of a cool way. I think I like with VR just help to connect with people, to help them see you know like what it's like out there. Uh, some people are not able to scuba dive. Some people can't go underwater, and it's it's not a cheap hobby to have either. Yeah. So. It's, it's not something that everybody gets to do. So any tech, I get excited about tech that can really help to communicate. Uh, and that's kind of like why Triton was started with this whole goal of bridging the gap between science and just like the general public. Because, I mean, Cooper, have you ever had to read a scientific paper in high school or something for a research project? Or been a while. I mean, I read them pretty frequently still. Like, I'll, like I like doing research, so, so do, I'll yeah. actually read like a scientific paper. But what's your okay? So what's your experience when you read one of those kind of papers? Or like when, or maybe when you first started. Well, I'm like with any kind of reading, I'm of the idea that if it can't be translated, if if a like what is it like a high school reading level can't understand it all, you're writing incorrectly. Hmm. But obviously, a scientific paper is a little different, where you use words that don't make sense to everyone and are a little complicated. So that usually turns me off of reading anything. Yeah. And that's my thought of any book I read. If it's not like as not easy to understand as possible, that's on the writer. Yeah. Like that's an issue with the writer. But then a scientific paper, you're not writing it for a reader. You're writing it for kind of like the information to be in the world. Right. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's your... a different concept than writing a book. Yeah. No, it's your audience, you know, like you're you're picking who your audience is and Scientific papers are usually generated, they're targeted for other artists. Mm-hmm. So the, the jargon, the words you're using is typically expected that people reading it will understand it, but yeah. they're usually people in your field. Uh, but I mean, I remember reading papers in high school and, you know, didn't fully speak the language and it was just always such a burden. Like you'd read up, you start picking up these papers like this is, this is the worst thing I've ever had to read in my life. And you just mm-hmm. push it aside. And I think that's something we've struggled with in the scientific community is just, not connecting right with like what we're working on with the general public or just mm-hmm. a broader audience and what it is. Uh, it just, yeah. So you get these, you get these scientists that speak very specific languages and their topics and you try and put them in a position where they have to explain this to maybe a high school class or junior high and it just, it doesn't go well. Like, mm-hmm. They just don't communicate on the same level. So the idea of Triton, which is like where these VR projects is coming from, which is the company I have now where we, we do these projects in Malaysia and here in the keys 
is to really, on top of the science, have an equal focus on communication. And I have a background in underwater film and videography and stuff too. So kind of taking those two fields and filming, being intentional about filming what I'm doing and then, uh, you know, creating material, utilizing all these platforms that we have now that are really good at reaching people, YouTube and yeah. TikTok, Instagram, like, you know, these are new tools that we can use to kind of share these these stories. Yep. And so Triton with a focus on communicating and telling stories about what's going on in the ocean and helping more people to understand and learn at the same time. Yeah. I mean, there's more places now to put out content than ever. Yeah, and even with this streaming platforms now, we were talking about a little bit where they're all like fighting for any kind of content. I was just watching one the other day of an underwater. Um, it was a guy that basically formed a bond with a octopus. Ah, uh, yes. The octopus man. It was octopus. Yes. Man? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, that really hooked me. Cause I was like, man, it's like a pet. It was like his dog. Like he was, he even like helped it in a couple situations where like a shark tried to get it. <laughs> and I'm mean, like, think about if you like step back and look at that story, like, there wasn't a ton to it, but it's there. There is a really people connect with these mm-hmm. stories where people connect with nature, and it was like you watched it. I was like, yeah, not a ton happened, but like an amazing story was told out of these simple, ex- these I don't want to say simple, but these what I kept unique experience was like the amount of time that this man spent in the ocean. Yeah, just cold like, water. I guess, oh, all the time. it was not warm <laughs> no too. Way. Like it was like a cold area. Yeah, it was like sorry. off the coast of Africa or something, and it was. It was crazy, though. That's a great documentary. I think it was on, like, Hulu or Amazon or something. My, my octopus teacher, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, see, I, I, you'd be like, yeah, you can make a story. Well, the octopus uh, are just so interesting to begin with. I mean, there's already people that say they're aliens. Oh, have you heard? Do you know just how smart those things are? I've seen them open jars. We oh, had one goodness. in my high school. In middle school, we had one in, like, one of the labs. And it, this thing was crazy smart. Yeah. It would open any jar you put yeah. in there. It they have cool. memory. That's the that was one of the biggest things that blew me away. I used to work in aquariums, you know, before I was like, you know, when you're trying to get in the marine sciences, you just intern in every place mm-hmm. you can that has a fish tank. Um, and even one of my professors in college, she used to have an octopus, and she told us this story that she would go, she'd come home from work, and her octopus would have left its aquarium and would be sitting on top of the refrigerator. And she's like, because the the octopus was waiting for her to get the food out of the freezer to give to it. So it would literally oh. come out of its cage, like aquarium, yep. wait on top of the fridge, and then come back. And then, but probably one of the best stories, this is probably one of the most famous stories that surround octopus and just the aquarium industry, mm-hmm. which gets passed around is, I want to say it was the, I believe it was the Monterey Bay Aquarium that this this is what happened at, where they had a, they had a big octopus there. And uh, in one of their exhibits, they had a crab exhibit, and they were coming in each morning and more crabs were missing. And they couldn't figure out, like, why the crabs kept disappearing from this, this system. And then eventually, like, you know, there's, like, one or two left. And there was, like, you know, there's probably 20 or something in there at one point. And then the janitor was walking around at night cleaning and caught an octopus running across the floor of the exhibit. And it just, so basically the octopus jumped out of its own system, yeah. ran across the aquarium into an adjacent, not just, like, the same room, like, a different room in the aquarium, jumped in the crab tank, grabbed one, Eat it, come back. Yeah. Or like vice versa, bring it back. So it was leaving its system every night just to steal a crab and come back. Like they're that smart. Like across like where people it was walk. walk. Like, yeah, it was. And that's why you see they actually have to put uh, turf grass around octopus enclosures now. So if you ever look at the top, if you go in an aquarium and you see an octopus mm-hmm. tank, you'll see it has turf grass because their tentacles can't stick to that. Oh. So they'll, they'll get to that. They don't like the feeling of it. They can't so climb they out. They won't climb out. So that's the way that they keep 
octopuses octopus enclosures open. Yeah, but they can't get out. So yeah, they they say they're about they have this, they're more intelligent than a house cat. Mm-hmm. But the only sad thing is they typically only live about two years. It's like really, super short lifespan, huh. but very intelligent. I figured they'd live longer than that because some I mean some aquatic animals live pretty damn long like dolphins we see all the time in florida i mean i was at the beach the other day and saw a school of dolphins swimming Mm -hmm. and even manatees live a long time you'd think octopus would live for a while that's always one thing that kind of like oh man what a bummer deal because yeah they're very intelligent probably one of the more intelligent things that live in the ocean but two years life expectancy for most of the species i think that's kind of generous they're pretty crazy i mean i've seen i've seen videos of them taking down basically any any animal in the ocean they can take down Kind of a cool deal. Octopus always have yep. been interesting to me because they don't seem similar to anything. Like you see a shark and you're like, okay, it's just like a mean fish. But like then octopus are just like this completely foreign entity altogether. Oh, they're always so fun to see. They that's why like the whole thing of like people are like, oh, they're alien. Like, yeah, no, they're there's just the yeah, they're intelligent. You can just tell. Yeah. So they're they're always fun to see when you're diving or around. Well, Coop. Yeah. I wonder. If I need to give you something, yes, let's see this art. I don't know where our time is at. No, you're good. We've, we've probably been in. We've probably been talking fish and corals for a long time. Yeah, I think people have heard enough. We've, we've exhausted them on it. So thank you for bearing with my my coral talk. I did bring this actually too. I was going to pop it up at some point. Yeah, is that a sausage link? This is that same coral. So this is staghorn coral from Florida, but probably about I think they said it's about eight to ten million years old. So this is fossilized, found out here. So you can see that branch that's been cut off. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine if you just like broke a branch, that's like what you're seeing in the center. So that. that's how big it grows in. So that just, I mean, that just kind of gives you an idea yeah. how long those have been here. And so how hard it is to see us lose them all in just like 30 mm. years. You know? Well, because when you think about a tree, the tree grows wider and wider as it grows. Yeah. But this will probably just grow arms longer and longer. Correct. Yeah. Okay. They thicken up a little bit, that's but then they cool. just grow up. It's like, yeah. that's like, that's millions of years old. And that's still the same coral species that you see sitting right there that we have off the coast today. So it was just something to give you a little bit of idea of make a great, context. Let's make a great countertop. Yeah. <laughs> Can't hold down a ton of paper with that, but it works. So, okay. All right. Cooper, should I show the art? Should we get Yeah, the let's break the art out. Cooper hasn't seen this let's yet either. Should, we give, right should you give so a little background see. story? Yeah, so. What this is? Um, or how we got to this point? Yeah, how did we even get to this? We point? we met kind of on weird terms, like yeah, you came over to look at my two forty yeah, so that I, met, I had for sale. Well, I met Garrett at the gym. Yep, and him and I ended up like talking and working out together for a little bit. Like tall guys, you know, we we connect to each other. Yeah, the way. bang your head on things yeah, together. We, same problems in life. And I told him I was looking for a car, and he's like, "Cool story." Everybody's looking for a car these days. And yep. specifically, uh, I was looking for an S chassis because I sold mine in California for way less than I should have back in the day. Yep, and get a text from Garrett like probably four hours after that and it's my buddy's selling uh 240 check out I'm like oh, okay cool tend to find out we live pretty close to each other same neighborhood same neighborhood <laughs> walk down the road to Cooper's house yep check out the car Cooper had to probably talk me out of this buy I definitely talked I mean, you he, out of it he, he definitely 100%. did 100% God bless him because man I, I wanted one bad you know how it is you you start to look through things like oh yeah like Sure, the doors are all missing, but I could fix that. I'm a bad salesman. <laughs> so Cooper pushed me out of it, which thankfully he did. And then we ended up staying in touch, obviously. Um, and now this week, we're going to look at another car That's for true. you. Another drift car, a Z chassis. Yep. 
little different. A little further north. But you also showed up with a, what was it? What car is I have a 86 Corolla. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so an, 86 Corolla with yeah. what engine is it? It's, it's not the Beams engine, right? It's a 20 valve. Okay. So, yeah. That was my first, like, I bought that car 2000 bucks when I was 15 years old. Okay. Reno, Nevada. And I fully rebuilt that 86. So, I mean, you know, A86s, uh, it's an 85 GTS. Yeah. Like, those things have just gone up like S chassis, too. Super cool car. Like, I mean, it's probably more sought after than an S chassis. Yeah. At this moment. Everybody wants those things. They're so, like... When you think of like initial D, yeah, they're like that iconic, and yours is on like the small wheels and stuff. Super cool setup that car. Yeah, that one. I don't. That's that's like that's when I was like you know when you're buying these cars back in the day, you're like oh let's let's build them for the track. And yeah. I drifted it a lot in like back when I was in Southern California, and then I got to the point where I'm thinking like oh dang, I don't think I can afford to put this thing into a wall one day. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, you're right. They've they've become pretty sought after. And that was probably a good investment, two thousand bucks. Yeah. And, much more than that, but I mean, this thing's fully rebuilt. I mean, yeah, full like suspension. I just mean like motor. Even like, no matter what, like that thing is just like a good hold of value yeah. car. It's a fun car, especially a clean, clean enough for what it is. I don't know how the underside looks, but no, it's it's pretty good. I mean, it's still. I mean, I have a. I did the panda paint job, which is that white and black, which mm-hmm. is really iconic to the Torinos that came out of Japan. Because this is this is not one from Japan. This is US one TTS, which makes it even more uncommon. Yeah, because yeah. a lot of these are coming over from Japan now. Like people yeah. are just buying them out of auctions yeah. and getting them back here in the states. I prefer to drive on the correct side of the road when I'm in my car. I'm a, I'm a sucker for that too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, a lot of people like don't really care for that, but I I actually prefer it. Like I don't yeah. want a car that I'm on the wrong side of. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm with you too. It would be fun to have maybe like an S15 or something one of these days, but and I I really enjoy being on that side, on the right side. That's why like GTRs don't appeal to me very much mm-hmm. because you're on the wrong side. <laughs> but yeah. And then one. we started talking about art. You helped me put up the ceiling in this room and helped me do a lot of the design of we this. S- we started to conceptualize yep. this facility. And then we started talking about art and building things and you were like, "Oh, I can draw and paint a logo for this room because we it needs it. like its own logo. Yeah. I'll move things around as needed, move the TV down or something, but let's see what see what we're working with here. So we, I mean, you got to give your so with this design, Cooper. This was originally your idea. So I just asked my Cooper, what do, what do you want? He's like, you know, and he laid out this idea. Yeah, we, I hope you saw that on a piece of paper somewhere. Somewhere, yeah. And we we we've, we've tossed with some ideas. But this is the final painting of oh, oh, oh. your new crest style Bugatti Studios. That's Bugatti. tight. So yeah, this is all watercolor painting. Um, we'll take this. Dude, that's super sick. <laughs> I don't know how much they can see it. I'll, I was gonna try to like prop it up over here so that it's visible, maybe. Oh, it actually works. We got a little glare, but yeah. So yeah, I mean, this, look at this cleaned up. I should probably go, Mike. I'll put it back there in a second. <laughs> we put, did you hear? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that came out awesome. So the plan was to get a big one made for right up there. Yep. Definitely put this up for now. Man, that looks so cool. So we wanted to do something that kind of had a family crest style, told a little bit of a story. Yep. Uh, of course, a lot of the car elements. If you're uh, listening to this, it'll be posted on my Facebook page, kubabogetti.com, or kubabogetti on Facebook, and then we'll hopefully get some merch made of it, too. But 
Yeah. So, I mean, I'll take this and I mean, this is just the painting. So most of my style, like I told you, like I paint things, yep. sketch them out first. We'll take this, we'll vectorize it, illustrate it. And then we can just, you can just go nuts with like, you know, making shirts or whatever you want with it. And that'll be a really clean illustrated version of it. But this is just the original painting that you can do what you want with. Dude, that looks so cool. That is such a sick. I liked your idea for the flag reflecting in the visor. Yep. That was, that was a cool ad. It needed some more color. So it's like, okay, this is. Yeah. For that'll, everybody that's just listening, we'll, there'll be photos. <laughs> something like this will fill up that negative space right above the TV so well. And we were even talking about, like, get it made, like, initially out of metal, like, cut out, yeah, and then print or vinyl on it, kind of like metal layers almost. I'm sure somebody will reach out to me that does something really cool. Yep. That's the awesome thing about this Someone reach out network of people is, like, yeah. I'll get messages of like people that can actually do cool things. And I, I just have ideas. You can <laughs> like just say like, art. Hey, can somebody help me with this? And yes. sure. And if someone shoots you a message real quick, dude, that's sick. Yeah. I like the way this came out. Yeah. That's this is a cool awesome. One. But you know, there were two designs that we looked at. We did talk about two different. Designs. I was like, I, well, I was pretty much in this position where I need to get these things done before I leave for, for Indonesia. Cause otherwise they're just, yeah. they're going to wait too long. So they're going to sit number two, which we can leave ghosted. I'll let you do a reveal. Dang. <laughs> we got the Camaro now. Oh, oh doing rip, a nice little smoky burnout. burnout. That's super sick, too, with the the red and blue CB. I'm sure they can see that one, too. You guys are watching. I'll hold it up for a second so you can look. But Again, it'll be posted on Facebook, so you guys can go see and Instagram. Cooper Bogetti, you should go follow anyways there. Dude, those came out so crazy. I can't believe you hand draw this stuff and then like paint it in. Like, I don't know. Is that one paint or is that? That's all paint. Yeah, that's crazy. It almost looks like it's like um, it almost looks like it's a uh, colored pencil, too. Yeah. Like the way that that one has like the, the different cut, like kind of the shading into it. Yeah. The, yeah. the depth to it. Wow, That's so cool, man. Well, that's this one, too, crazy. we'll have some we'll be able to vectorize. And well, clean up. So what first happened was you showed me some of your military style art right. and it was crusty and it was like very like sailor because mm-hmm. you, you know, yep. kind of goes with your background. And I was like, man, that would be really cool in the automotive world because I don't think anybody's really doing that. I don't know if I can think of. Like, Not like this. <laughs> Cause definitely like, yeah. nothing like that. Like Cooper saying. So, I mean, a lot of my artwork comes from, uh, I was in the Navy of course, like Navy Marine Corps. We'll probably mm-hmm. explain that a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, but most of my art style more focuses on this American traditional style, which is probably an old school tattoo traditional style. Yep. Which is like bold black lines, bold color, lots of black is tri- kind of some key things of traditional. Uh, I left out the that brown background for the sake of making this easier to yeah. work with and print with. It's a little more modern. Felt like it kind of fit with your backdrop a little bit better too. So yeah, so some of the artwork now is kind of a, more modernized American traditional art style. So the the play, my page that I do most of my artwork is called the Hold Fast Collective, and that's all military uh, kind of art design. So if you're going to look at it, pretty much any artwork on there is military related. But of well, course, I have, yeah, I have this passion for cars, <laughs> so I've wanted to start taking these this start dappling in the art car community. Yeah. So. I've done a few designs there, and I just started a page called Auto Refresh Designs on Instagram, and that's where I'm going to start posting a lot of my car art, but this is kind of some of it, too. So working with Cooper and with some of his designs is 
It's been fun. Yeah, so I'm going to put this stuff down in the uh, link in the description so you guys can check it out because there's some really cool stuff. If you're into that style of art, you'll definitely like these. And you've done actual work for the military. A lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it's so it's such a weird thought because, like, the military doing, like, like, obviously everybody needs graphic design, but it's, like, a weird thing to think about, like, the military contracting a graphic designer. <laughs> it is. I mean, most of the time it's, it's like, command leadership paying out of pocket yeah. to have, like, a battalion or company logo done um, or, like, certificates. So, uh, like, certificates was a big thing back in the, like, old school Navy. Like, we had these shellback certificates, which were these huge yeah. certs you got for passing the equator on a boat. And... Uh, so kind of like I, it started with designing a certificate for a command and then it, it became just designing tons of artwork for all different types of branches and units and stuff and all within that kind of traditional style. So I don't know, maybe some of the folks out there have seen the hold fast collective, but that's, that's what was born out of the military times. Yeah. They should definitely check it out now because it's got a lot of cool military style stuff. I've had a lot of people on here that have I've had quite a few people on here that have spent time in the military, and I, weirdly enough, they're all on boats and ships, which is very interesting. I say I was I was a Navy, but I never touched a boat. No, <laughs> stayed away from the boats. Well, it was like you know I joined when I went in. This was like right when the Afghanistan war was like pretty heavy. Yeah, and so you joined during combat. During, yeah, so like right and like with the intention, like I said, I was in college, uh, finishing up my 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 undergrad degree. And I just, I had some things happen to me where uh, a good friend of mine lost his brother, like over, like in Afghanistan. And it's kind of like one of those moments where like this war that felt so distant from, you know, like when you're in college, you're just like, oh, I'm living it up. I'm in college. Like, yeah. This is my little dump, my bubble. And then something that is happening on the other side of the world, like that really impacts you. It just became very real. Mm-hmm. So uh, when my buddy's friend uh, passed away, it's just kind of hit us all that like there is some very significant things happening and the other like around the world that is now impacting us. Mm-hmm. And like what what are we doing to like be a part of it or like should we be doing something or like should we just like put ourselves aside? And for me is like I need to do something. I want to be I want to I want to I want to take part in what all this is going and do my part, I guess you could say. And so I might <laughs> before my senior year of college, I went and joined to be a Navy corpsman. So I like the idea of being a corpsman because corpsmen were uh, basically field medics for the Marine Corps. So the Marines don't have their own mil- uh, medical personnel. They have they use Navy corpsmen that they train in like mil- Marine Corps infantry tactics. Okay. Then, they, then they basically get linked up to a Marine Corps battalion assigned to a company and then a platoon. And then you become the sole medical provider within the platoon. And so that's kind of like, it's a really unique like autonomous role you play as like a mm-hmm. medical provider for all these guys in an infantry platoon. And so I was like, that's exactly what I want to do. I wanted to be a medic with the Marines. And so I went into the Marine Corps recruiter's office and he saw I was in college. He's like, Oh, you should become an officer. I'm like, no, I want to be a corpsman. Like, that's, I'm not doing this because yeah. I want to make a career out of this. I just want to do my part and do this specific job. Yep. Go Please. through it and, be, and get out of it. Yeah. And you know, recruiters, they hold on to anybody that yeah. comes in their doors. But the guy looked at me, this Marine, and he's like, he's like, he's like damn it, Doc. Like, he's like, he's like Joe at the time. He's like, if you would have said any other job, I would have talked you out of it. But he's like, that's the one job that like Marines actually appreciate. So he's like, but unfortunately, you have to go to the Navy, which is like that building there. So he's like, 
go to that building right there. And if that recruiter tries to convince you of anything but a corpsman, you better come right back here. So he's like, no, go do that job. So I went over there. Uh, obviously, I, I enlisted, became a corpsman, uh, did boot camp and everything right after I finished college. So I went enlisted after college and did this job. And then so with uh, corpsman, you go through like your training up in Chicago at the time. And then you uh, you go through like a Marine Corps style train. Like, so then you go like the Marine Corps side of the house and they train you to become a field medical service technician. So yeah, um, 8404 corpsman, basically, FMF, Fleet Marine Force. And that's when you basically have the skills of a field medic with some additional training plus infantry tactics and like mm-hmm. battlefield type skills. And so you become like this hybrid and then you get embedded with an, a Marine Corps unit. So that's... Like I said, so pretty much any male at the time that was becoming a corpsman was instantly being sent to the Marine Corps side of the house to deploy. So once you got that 8404 NEC designator to your name, you were just in a lineup to go to Afghanistan. Is it because there was pretty much just Marines being deployed? Yeah, the Marines, I mean, no, like the Army was going, Yeah, uh, the Marines were going, but uh, the Marines had a pretty st- steady deployment, depend- like depending on who you were with. So like I was with the first Marine Division out of mm-hmm. at San Diego or at Oceanside, Southern California, yeah, and pretty steadily deploying to Afghanistan. So once you get out there, you just kind of get put into the next deploying unit. And so yeah, I ended up going to Afghanistan twice. The first time it was actually an augment with the Army. So I I show up on a Marine Corps base, but the Army also they liked corpsmen because we tended to have like we we're pretty well trained. Not to say I've been with a lot of Army medics who are impressive. But they were taking Navy corpsmen, too. So mm-hmm. the first time I deployed, I got attached to an Army unit and then went over to Afghanistan with a shock trauma platoon slash artillery okay. group. And then came back six months later, redeployed with Marine Corps combat engineers. And then we supported like infantry platoons mm-hmm. doing route clearance and that kind of stuff. I so, feel like having the medical training is like the coolest side to also have in the u.s because i feel like medical is something that might always pop up Mm -hmm. anytime down the line like medical emergencies happen pretty frequently and that seems like one of the best skills to walk away with because if you're a drone operator you don't leave with like true real world usage almost like that is a very specific skill transfer better than others and i feel like medical is like one of those things like i always say i want to go and take medical classes like first responder classes because I go racing all the time. I'm around dangerous stuff. It'd be nice to have a little bit more experience. Well, Cooper, I think I need to teach you something then. Yeah. I mean, I brought I, some stuff. One of them I think you should have. I need so, to learn to do a tourniquet and stuff, you know, all the simple stuff. She's going to bring you all these types of goods. You already got two yeah, paintings. I mean, look at this. So Goodness. it's really just Coffee turned into like a, sh- a show and tell type experience. Yeah. So this was this is one of my bags I carried with me. Let me take a my break real quick. And cut. <laughs> yeah, back in. Um, I was thinking though, did you guys also get better camouflage than the army? Wasn't there a difference in the army camo for the desert and the marine camo? Yeah, we always and flex- the armies didn't work as well, but the marines had the proprietary. You know, so you did hear about this. It. Yeah. yeah, I've heard about it before, and they wouldn't share. Oh, it's their- a hot thing where. <laughs> We, uh, yeah, the Army at the time had, they went from ACUs to multicam, and multicam is what they're in right now. 
the Marine Corps has been in our deserts and woodlands. Like it's like that digital, yeah, which has just worked really well. Like it's a, it's a really solid. It's like a very small digital, yeah. very very small pixel basically. Yeah, which is supposed to like you know the eye can't really pick up lines, which is why it's such a good mm-hmm. camo. And we can pretty much use both patterns in Afghanistan, and it worked. Hmm. It worked well. So it was like so the Marines. One thing you learn about Marines is they're probably the most like. Marines are Marine. Like once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine flight. They're very, they're very proud, rightfully so, of like their history. And you don't touch Marine Corps stuff. You know, it's like the Marines are one of the only branches where you'll never see them wear their uniforms in public. The Army can go out in town in public. I think the Navy can go out in town in public in their, in like their camis. Like you'll yeah. see them at the grocery store or at the airport. The Marines are never allowed to do that huh. unless it's like their dress uniform because like they believe like you know this is the uniform we fight and die in. This is not something you wear to the grocery store. So they hold these things to be pretty sacred, which I, I really appreciate about the Marine Corps because yeah. they, they give proper respect and honor to, like, what they should. Yeah. So, they, so like, when it came up, like, you're talking about the, the Army's like, hey, we really like your, your digis. Like, we, we want to wear woodlands and deserts, too. Marine Corps like, no, not going to happen. <laughs> And it was like, oh, well, we're all in one team, one fight, right? And they were like, no, that's ours. <laughs> but the weird thing was, like, they said that the armies didn't actually work. Like, it didn't, like, you could see it because they tried the digital, but it was too big, too small of, pic- like, too big mm. of pixels. Mm. So it almost made it obvious instead of made it camo. And apparently it was, like, a big blunder issue, and they spent, like, millions of dollars developing it, and it didn't work. I I. <laughs> and I they couldn't use the true. Marines even at all. Like, even, like, oh, we'll just reprint it. <laughs> well, like, when the multicam came out, like, everybody thought that was just, like, the sickest stuff, you know? Yeah. And so, like, the Brits adopted it, and I think, uh, I don't think the Aussies did. The Aussies always had their jelly bean uniforms, I think is what we called them, because they had, like, kind of, like, jelly bean-looking prints all over them. But, yeah. Um, I know there were a couple other nations that took on the multicam, and, yeah, I don't, I mean, I had, like, when I was with the Army, I was issued on multicam, and... You still feel super cool when you get all these uniforms, but yeah, I don't really know how that stuck. I just know that they did try and switch mm-hmm. and then it just wasn't well received. <laughs> it's something pretty interesting that there was yeah. like a big issue there where the like, army spent all this money and they had something that wasn't working right. It actually was opposite of what it was supposed to do. It was making it easy to tell somebody was there instead of camo. Yeah, because the, the, the Navy did that too. I mean, we, the Navy switched over to, we called them blueberries. Mm-hmm. So they, it was like that. We, at the time, they just had uh, what were those called? The dungarees. It was like that blue and blue, and like blue shirt, uh, dark blue pants. And then we switched to the the NSUs or the whatever it was. It was the the blue. We call them the blueberries, like the blue digital camouflage. Yeah. And everybody thought it was super cool at first, and they're like, "This doesn't make any sense." And then the neighbors like, "Oh, we need a new one." So like we those were around for maybe three years. They spent all this money on it. And then they switched into like their new green digital camis, which that's funny. So it's like just another testament to a lot of government spending on things that just change real quick. Could be worse. You could be walking around in light baby blue. Yeah, true. Well, Nobody you're talking about wanting to learn some medical stuff, mm-hmm. and so I thought that actually might be a cool thing to actually show or talk about is probably some like really basic things you could learn to maybe actually save a life. Who knows? Yeah. But you can learn. So. Uh, this was my bag, which I carried with me on both deployments, okay. and I'm not going to walk you through it because it would take too long. But there is I'm a sure there's there quite is a, a tourniquet. Things. Have you ever used a tourniquet before? Um, no, I don't believe I've ever used one like this. Oh, where it twists to get tight. This so this these are cat tourniquets. These are the ones that were issued to us. Um, kind of like I mean, there's a few different forms. Like here's a tack tourniquet. 
Sure, this cost the military eight hundred, nine hundred dollars. A stupid amount of money, and then <laughs> maybe maybe two thousand. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you this one, but I'm also gonna show you how to use it because you know, like you're right. There's there's a lot of places where um, you could find yourself like and like I've had friends have encountered pretty bad injuries where they've had to tourniquet something. So I, I almost whenever I go through things, I always have some stuff with me yeah. just in case. So just kind of give you an idea how these things work, and then. I'm actually going to show you guys how to do a tourniquet with just a piece of cloth. Because, yeah, this, I mean, this is, this is probably one of the most basic skills that they hammer into a corpsman or any medic's brain is how to tourniquet somebody quickly and correctly. Because, I mean, civilian medicine is a little different from military medicine. Mm-hmm. Like, our priorities are different. We tend to experience more, like, major bleeding injuries. That's why yeah. in the civilian side, they go by, like, ABCs. Airway, breathing, circulation. You kind of work with make sure they breathe first. And then you assess bleeding. Whereas in the military, you know, it's more typically major blast injuries or gunshot wounds on the yep. battlefield. So we start with major bleeding first as our priority. So, so is this one-time one. use breaks? These things you don't want. They, they you can use them. They're yeah, they're one-time use because it looks I, I like the plastic if breaks you, to. If, oh no, I'll show you. It's like okay. I mean, if you're legitimately using one of these and someone's bleeding, you're not going to go put it in the washing machine when it's done and reuse yeah, it. That's but, fair. Uh, and they do kind of get worn out in the sun. But all you're going to do. So you just leave it looped, put it on, cinch it across, make sure you Velcro. Then also you're going to want to Velcro through here because it's like a security thing. It's like tighten it down. Okay. You just twist. And then it... You twist, twist, twist until we say you twist until the bleeding stops, you know, which can be quite a bit. And then when you're tight enough, you lock it in, zip it down, write the time. Mm -hmm. And that's how you apply one of these tourniquets. And... There really is only four places on the body you can use a tourniquet. Yep. So we say high and tight. So there's, uh, like, if you talk about the human anatomy, you have, like, single bones and double bones. So the only place you can put a tourniquet over correctly is, like, over a single bone. Because, like, you know, you got your veins, those things that are bleeding run between the bones, and you're not going to get that proper pressure on those lower extremities. Whereas on the upper side, like, uh, like your femur or your upper arm, or a single bone, you can actually clamp down on blood vessels mm. to stop the bleeding. So here, just to give you a feeling what this is like. It makes sense because I would think like, oh, somebody's bleeding like on their hand. Yeah. So that's a common mistake is like people see like you broke, you like someone got their hand ripped off. The instinct is to want to put a tourniquet around like their wrist. That's the exact mistake I would make. And that's what people instinctively, make. And then you twist it like that. You twist it, twist it. You'll feel it get tighter, oh, tighter, yeah. tighter. And then you. And then you lock it in. And so that's how, so that's a, that's a CAT combat tourniquet, a combat application tourniquet, I believe is what CAT stands for. Huh. And so that's what we typically carry on all our deployments. They're probably the, the cheaper of the versions of the ones we get. But as long as you keep them out of the sun, they, they were pretty reliable. So, yeah, it's not a hard thing to keep with you. No. But just know that it goes high up mm-hmm. on single bones. So. I think I have, a, I have a couple different first aid kits that I keep around in most of my vehicles. Like I keep... And I think one of them actually had like a, a plastic style tourniquet where it just kind of pulls tight. Yeah. Nothing obviously like this, but it's it's part of it because I'm a kind of a I would say weirdo, but I keep first aid kits in most yeah. of my places that That's I right. live because I keep one in my truck with me, buy my race car at all times. I keep one in the shop and just. First aid kits are important, people. It's like having a fire extinguisher. Yeah, even like on the fishing boat, like, you know, we just, we always have it. And you just yep. never know. Cause I've been driving down the road and I've seen a number of accidents I've responded to. And 
Uh, you know, you can only, we always say in medicine or like in our fields, like you only ever do what you know. So as much as we educate ourselves on these things, it's like, that's how we're going to respond. Yeah. And so it's important to constantly kind of improve in widen our knowledge, especially on medical stuff. Cause when the situation arises, you'll know what to do. So I'm going to give you this one, but for the, Dude, thank you. So you can have that in case I know you and Garrett, Just you guys, you and Garrett guys, you guys get into some crazy things. So maybe you'll need one one day. But for those of you who are watching on YouTube, I wanted to show like a really like an improvised because not everybody's going to have these like military grade yeah. cat tourniquets. I mean, you could buy them online. Let's be real. Yeah. But say you're in a situation where, but you could own one and it not be with you when you need to use it yeah is the other part of it that's another big thing so it's 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 good to know how to make something like mm-hmm. you see it's like cinema all the time you see my movies like someone ranks off a belt and like they, yeah. they use it into a tournament like i've never seen one of those been able to get tight enough you just can't do it with like a leather belt it, interesting it's it's just too because you're going to see what's going to have to happen and so like some of movie medicine is just like that's so are you true. saying bruce willis didn't do that over his pants and then still save the world you, you'd be amazed at how tight you have to get a tourniquet to actually stop bleeding you know you like, have to fully pinch off the i mean veins. i've i've been in the field and we've had to use like two or three on a single person and to actually get to work so it's it's not like the movies yeah like, oh, get down pull your belt off and it rips them out so and this puts is it in the lowest belt notch which is usually not there to touch on that that this is not just you were taught this you actually use these yeah so I've, I've used them before okay so that's a it's a crazy thought in itself yeah. to think that probably an iud or something like that caused yeah. you to actually have to use one and i i hope they worked for those people that's something like i said sometimes they break they break on you so like we always have the same one is one is none two is one mm-hmm. so for every single piece of equipment i always make sure i have two or more yeah because i always expect something to fail and I think that that's kind of carried into most of my things in life is always have a backup. It's very like <laughs> car stuff, Marine thing too, because what is it? It's like, if you're on time, you're late. Yeah. If you're on time, you're late. <laughs> but yeah, for those of you who want to learn like a really simple, like correct way that yeah, you can put like a, a tourniquet nice scarf. on, this, like you can do this with just a piece of, you can tear a shirt just to get a piece of cloth. So if you find yourself in a situation where somebody cuts themselves pretty bad and they're bleeding pretty, pretty bad, and you need to turn a kit, uh, like I said, an upper arm or an upper leg. It's like even if it's the foot, it always goes high. So mm-hmm. uh, always high because that's where you're going to get the best. But this is a scarf which I got in Afghanistan and I carried with me most of the time. We use them as just like face wraps. But uh, the way you're going to do this, and I'm going to come and show you, Cooper, on you. You so need I, me too. Here, I'm I, not, can, I can kind of reach over. Okay, so I was about to say to. for sound yeah. purposes, I'm going to temporary break and show this. Unless this will hold. Yeah, it should. All right, so I'm going to need this arm as best as possible. Okay, we're back. We're going to go for it? Yes. Let's see. Let's see what this looks like All here. Right. So this is... We've got stand-up microphones now. We just consider this like field oh, improvise. Well, it's fine. We still working? The, yeah, the framing I was thinking, but your oh. head is cut off a little bit. Tell people problems. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so, so just get me this bone okay. as you can. So all you're going to do, like I say, you tear a shirt, get a piece of cloth, get it to uh, straight, you know, Mm-hmm. And then loop it in half. So you're just going to go right there. Okay. Like I said, you can do this with a lot of things. Bring it across. You're going to shove the two tail ends through the loop. And you're going to crank this down as best as possible. Like the angle's a little weird. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you want to get that as tight, and then you split your ends. And then you pull, Ow. <laughs> and then you pull this back, and you tie it together. And you can see how, like, I didn't even do it that hard, but you probably feel it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
So that's one way, like you just split the ends, Ow. tie the end, <laughs> and you basically set off circulation in Cooper's arm. Yeah, I need that there. Yeah, but that's just a piece of cloth you can that's do That's crazy. So you're just working No, with... I mean, you could definitely tell that that would, like if I had an injury from there yeah. down. I mean, you're just working with the laws of like... What if uh, like the injury is like right there? Do you, do that's you go t- over it, basically? Yeah. Do you when go you're... over the injury? No, when you get one, like those ones that we say are really like up there in the axial, like the the pockets are the worst because yeah. you can't get a tourniquet in there. You just stuff it with as much gauze or packing material as possible. Like you literally, you would probably, even if this is all you had, you would just mm-hmm. get your fingers in there. Try and like, it's like, not, it's not going to feel good, but you're, you're packing the wound at that point. Yeah. And in what the, do you have for like a painkiller on you when you're in the field? We would carry uh, morphine in the field. Yeah. I'm trying to think what we have. Um. You guys would carry, like, some kind of, like... Oh, yeah, we have... Like, morphine wasn't... I think when we were... Morphine kind of phased out, we were using fentanyl pops. <laughs> so it was literally, oh. like, a lollipop, uh, for, like, fentanyl-based, and yeah. they worked really well. So what you would do is you you tape them to the guy's hand, and you just tell him to start sucking on it. So you tape it to his hand, you put it in his mouth, and he would suck on it, and eventually painkiller, and then they'd pass out. And it was a way to kind of regulate their dosage, because as soon as they pass out... It would fall out of their mouth, and they'd still have it taped to their hands, so you didn't have to worry about it. But then they, when the pain would come back, they'd wake up, and they'd start sucking on their fentanyl pop again. And yeah, they wouldn't have to and, look for it or anything. they just pass out again. Holy so it was like crap. it was – we had those. That was one of them. Yeah. So yeah. you did two tours. Yeah. And both times you were kind of the medical guy. Is it just one medical or is it two? Um, so the first trained one, people for medical? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first one, I was part of a shock trauma platoon. So, like, have you ever seen the old show MASH, like, where they, like, this forward surgical base? That was something that they, they were, the Navy was trying where they were putting basically surgical capabilities, like, at the, like, right on the front lines. And so they would, we'd set up these makeshift trauma bays, mm-hmm. and we would just take on casualties. And so you just see casualties every day. We'd be treating Afghan soldiers, police, Taliban, like, because, you know, the, we'd, you'd get those guys, and you'd, you'd want to keep them alive to talk to them. And so we get them a lot, Americans, of course. But it's mm-hmm. like the first deployment was a few foot patrols doing stuff with them, but mainly day-to-day traumas, like working source. Like that's when you really hone in on like a lot of those medical skills. Did CASIVAC, so where you'd fly patients from like one, the field to like the bigger hospitals. And we, yeah, that was, that deployment just had a lot of different things to experience. We had a, we had a SEAL team that was, we were working with that we did their medical. So those guys were always rad. Like yeah. some of the most impressive professional military personnel you'll ever get to work with is the yeah, SEALs. It's crazy to hear them talk. Oh, they're just, they operate on such a different level and they were always really good to me and always helpful, like teaching me their weapon mm-hmm. systems or like they got me qualified in like expeditionary warfare for like their stuff. So like really, really like the first deployment, mm-hmm. pretty, pretty diverse. And then the second deployment, and then working with a like a, like a team of medical personnel. The second one was with the Marines, and I was part of Combat Engineer Battalion, First Combat Engineers. And we would go out there and we'd support uh, all the infantry units that were trying to move around in our AO. And we would just go in front, and we were just minesweepers. So we were just CB guys, Combat Engineers. We we're we we're looking we we're looking for bombs, and so we would just drive around the country in front of other people and look for bombs. And this was, when you do that, sure, you're, you deploy as a battalion, so 1st Combat Engineer Battalion. And then we start getting sent out with all the different, and like our companies start getting broken up to all the platoons. So I was Charlie Company 3rd Platoon, 
And then we would go to support, like say one seven was doing a raid on a house mm-hmm. or one nine. And so we'd show up or we'd send engineers to sweep with them or we'd support their movements at night. And mm-hmm. so we just kind of like, yeah, you, you kind of get sent out to support anybody who yeah. needs engineer support primarily for just IED. And now that would mostly be like by Humvee or were you like flying in helicopters a lot? Were you in like that one was all what kind of hardware are we talking about on that deal? Yeah. So we had, we had like old Marine Corps MRAPs, like, Mm -hmm. you know, those up armored vehicles. Yeah. Uh, Those are actually the good ones. The Humvees are pretty useless. Yeah. The Humvees, they do not take much because I mean, they, they get pretty wise. The, like, like the, the Taliban knew pretty much what our vehicles could take and what they don't really have any, and you'd be amazed at how fast those guys were at planting bombs. Like you would, you would have eyes on a road that was like 10 miles. Like we'd have these balloons that would keep eyes on roads for us and we'd clear them. Mm-hmm. But the second we cleared a road within like, you know, it was, it was already considered dangerous after you left it. So like you always had to assume, cause they would be so good at coming in behind you, behind you, planting a new bomb, an IED, and then on your way home, you'd hit it. It would happen that fast, and it did. It happened to us, like, on the same day. Like, we'd drive one spot, and then on the yeah. way back, you'd be there. And you'd see the way they did it is they'd be in a bunch, like, one of the ways, which just still blew my mind, is there was this one group of guys that were in a, they were dressed up like shepherds, so they're just herding a big group of sheep around the field. And then they they moved their sheep onto the road, and they stopped there. And while the sheep were just hanging on the road, they were digging underneath the sheep, planted a bomb and then yeah. they just moved away. So all you saw was a big herd of sheep that moved across the road. But in that, that time period, they planted and buried an IED and then moved on. So it just like, it happens that yeah. quick. And in those situations, when you're at the platoon level, so like I would be supporting one seven, they, uh, those guys, the Marines would, the infantry would have their own corpsman, but I would be the only medical guy for my guys. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So it was, you pretty much acted solo on all the missions. Well, that's what's interesting, too, kind of on a different topic is there's always this like, oh, you know, like regular civilians could never take on like a military. But like it's crazy because Mm -hmm. like we're seeing it in Ukraine where like, you know, just regular citizens are kind of like actually like, you know, fighting a battle. They make a difference. They make a pretty big difference, especially with like the drones that they're using now and stuff. And like that debate always comes up in the gun control debate in mm. the gun world of like, you know, yeah. citizens don't need military style yeah. weaponry. <laughs> I'll keep mine. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> keep mine. But it's, it's interesting to actually see you saw firsthand of what a kind of a ragtag group of people with not like, I'm sure they didn't have crazy, like you just never really knew who you were fighting direction. You know? Like a military had, they were more just like, yeah, and it was tough. Like, we had really, like, you know, I think one of the hard things that people didn't realize for the Americans and the NATO forces over there is we had our hands, like, really heavily tied. Like, if we couldn't shoot at somebody unless they shot at us. So we could have a guy that we, like, 100% sure he's Taliban, mm-hmm. walk in front of you with an AK, and if he didn't point the gun at you and pull the trigger, you couldn't do anything. So he could walk right up to your, you go right up to you, you see him with the gun, wow. you're like, and you yeah. couldn't do anything. Even so who was where, who did those orders come from then? Oh, just like the area command, like the AO commander from there. Oh. Same heat thing. Yeah, but we have audio, so it's fine. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So yeah, this, the same thing. So it would you just like there was a time we'd get into a firefight and we watched the guy shooting at us and we were shooting back and then he set his gun down. We couldn't shoot back anymore. Huh. So it's kind of like once you once you say you're them, like you know, put yourself in the, their position. And they know you have to operate by these very strict guidelines, but they don't. Mm-hmm. And they know that they can come run at you real quick, t- 
take a pop shot, set the rifle down, and then be like, whoa, 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 and you're you can't do anything. Yeah, it's like heist. You, that's not a war you can win. You yeah, can't, like, it's not like a fair battle. It's, it's right. not like a fair war. Because like yeah, we had to we had to, like had to keep things so PC for so long because we were yeah. worried about a bad image and you. You don't want to hurt anybody that's not involved. Well, they'd use children and stuff too, which oh, is like was, a whole crazy side it was of so things. So sad what was going on out there. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think your listeners want to hear some of the nitty gritties, but I'm sure some of them yeah. do. But maybe by and large, <laughs> yeah, they don't. We'll keep it a little bit more because yeah. yeah, it's it's not all it's not it's not positive. There's it's, plenty of movies that show a lot of that yeah. craziness of it. I mean, um, which one? The sniper, uh, American, American sniper. sniper. It's a great one that shows some of the. It's what he was dealing with and very true story, which is like a crazy one to watch. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a lot of, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more in the next 10 years of what happened over there. Kind of takes a little while to come out. I mean, there's still world war two movies coming out. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's, it's a war. Like there's nothing, there's nothing fun to talk about it. No. just wish it never had to happen. So, yeah. Well, thank you for going over there and doing that. I mean, yeah. we can, can't really appreciate soldiers enough for that and the sacrifice that you had to give is pretty crazy and the fact that you so willingly went and did that is wild in itself but no i appreciate it's one of those things you don't get to talk about yeah i don't think i've talked about any of this deployment stuff in the last probably eight years so i know it's probably one of those topics that seem like kind of like taboo to a lot of people Mm -hmm. who probably weren't in especially talking to veterans but i think a lot of the guys and the girls who were over there would actually appreciate it if we mm-hmm. were asked about some of this stuff. Because like I said, some people, I, I think it's like, I, I understand a lot of people aren't going to be relate or they like, it's a hard, some of these are hard questions to ask, but I think there's certain things I know as veterans, like from the war in Afghanistan, Iraq and others, there's certainly things I'm sure they don't want to talk about. Um, just from there, but I think there's also a level which when people don't ask, it's almost like it wasn't important mm-hmm. and like, you know, it's like if nobody asked me about, because I would say my time in the Marine Corps was probably some of the most impactful eight years of my life. Like some of the things I did and saw there changed me forever and were some of the best things I've ever, like things I've ever done. Yeah. And so imagine doing that. And then for the rest of your life, nobody asks a question about it. Nobody yep. gets to, you don't ever get to bring it back up because it's just like an awkward topic, but it's, it's a very real thing, which I think just like, I hope people can understand it's okay to ask some questions and actually i think there are a lot of veterans that would appreciate when they're when they're asked yeah not um, just like the typical thank you for your service but yeah. actually like hear about what was going on and i think that's important because for civilians to just kind of turn a blind eye yeah. to what happened and like not know anything about it and not know like you know like iraq and afghanistan and that's like the extent of it yeah. for the most part even me like if you're not hearing firsthand stories it's not really like the same yeah. as actually like hearing from someone like you that was there. Yeah, and the time that you spent there, I mean, that's a long time to be in a yeah, foreign country in a there. desert. <laughs> I was going to ask about um like the different countries that were involved. So you weren't able to shoot back, but like Canada was there. Oh gosh, yeah. Do they follow <laughs> do they follow the same thing? I think because the, they don't have like why would they listen to what the US Congress says? Who was it? It's the, yeah, I mean, like pretty much, you know, like the Brits, the Canadians, the Americans, uh, the Germans, a lot of us fell under pretty strict NATO regulations, but there were also these countries that were trying to come into NATO. Yeah. Like the the Georgians, the Romanians. 
I want the Lithuanians. Some of them are, uh, yeah. but some of them were not at the time. And I want to say it was the Slovakians. They operated by their own rules. Oh, <laughs> like really? Things, yeah, some of the things those they did what they wanted to do. Like they probably fought a more like typical war. Like huh. they were some of the most aggressive out there. And would you guys be on a base with them? Oh yeah, like some of my best friends okay, these days. So you guys share a, all all share oh, a, gosh. a U.S. Army base, a U.S. military base. Yeah, and everybody would be on that same base. So basically, you'd have to like. The Slovakians that aren't part of NATO maybe have to pitch to the U.S. to be, like, allowed to be on the base with them, or they're just rogue soldiers. Yeah, so, I mean, like I said, I, 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 from my understanding, I say this, like, I, I, I know my perspective is limited, uh, that uh, the Romanians and the Georgians, you know, they and the Slovakians, they were they were over there because you need in order to join NATO, you have to do something. You can't just say, I want in yeah. and not kind of do your part. So I think Afghanistan was a, was an opportunity for them to be involved support NATO and then be able to be like, look, we supported, we were involved. Now let us into NATO. And mm. um, I don't know how that worked out for some of them. Like a, a lot of good friends now, because I worked a lot with the Romanians and Lithuanians and Georgians. Like I think I told you before, like one of my tours was just training Georgians in Germany before mm-hmm. deploying. And <laughs> just talk about like some, some fun dude, crazy dudes, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the Lithuanians, they would, they would just sleep in vehicles, never have any home, and just wear cowboy hats and just ride around in the streets on dirt bikes, like just just doing some cowboy yeah. stuff. Like huh. Lithuanians, yeah, they would. Well, these are the SF guys. They would just. I remember like one guy was just riding around on a dirt bike and with a cowboy hat and just like chasing down like yeah. valuable. Like, <laughs> well, it's interesting too because those are like they're Christian countries too. Like, yeah, for, or yeah, what's um? I think they're very like Christian partially. Which is a very interesting thing for like a, what do they call it? like um, Central Europe or whatever they call that or Western Europe, right? Yeah, you, yeah, I think it's kind of West, Western, Western Europe Western. countries. Yeah, <laughs> you know those middle border countries. Like, yeah. yeah, where they're all really <laughs> close together. There, yeah. yeah, that's very interesting about those countries to begin with. You wouldn't think that, especially being so close to the Middle East, because they're only right on the other side of the coast. They're right there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like that's a whole, and that's kind of interesting that comes up with the whole Ukraine thing, you know, all these kind of countries that, that existed on this border between like Western Europe and Russia. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these countries wanting to get into a NATO alliance, probably because of like the Russian, like what's going on in Ukraine right now. Yeah. And so then we were, we were seeing what's happening in Ukraine. So. And people think, like, Russia is really big, but, like, most of it's right there. Yeah. Like, 99% of the people are kind of, like, right... Tucked on that one border. Right on that <laughs> one border. It's the same with Canada. Like, yeah. most Canadians are, like, They're not right on the, the northern border. end of the Arctic Circle. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting, like, geo- geographical sense of that. And I don't know how it is with the Middle East, where they're at, like... Are they mostly, were you on like the coastline or were you by like? So I was mainly in uh, southern Afghanistan, the Helmand province, uh, Sangin, uh, those areas operating. Mm-hmm. So like that's where Camp Leatherneck was, where mainly, mainly all the Marines were. But you get on these bases, especially, I want to say it was Kandahar. Uh, I was there for like a little bit kind of in and out. Uh, and like these things are like big melting pots of countries, man. Because you get yeah. on there and you've got... It's a cultural experience, yeah. You get all these countries all living and eating in the same area, mm-hmm. and um, but yes, yeah, so primarily down south, down in the the valley area. How is it with like equipment? Like, would somebody from Romania show up and they have like some 
awesome firearms or maybe some like junk or maybe like some stuff you're like, dang, oh, I'd, I'd like to have that. I'd like to have that site. <laughs> Cooper, man, you're bringing up so many memories with these questions, man. You're good with this. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's you. You would show up like the army always had tons of money. You'd show up and uh, like so like as the as Marines were always getting hand me downs. So we're getting vehicles that were used previously. It was always kind of nerve wracking because those MRAPs could only really take like one major blast. And then the second one would be like devastating. Huh. So like you look at this really expensive piece of equipment. If it was hit once you, and like you knew your truck had been hit before, kind of repaired the second time the structural integrity of the hull was not there. And so you're always kind of worried to be like you didn't want a hand me down that had been hit before. But mm-hmm. at that point, it's pretty much all of them. So the Marines had all these hand me down, beat up, blown up, repaired trucks. Just the Marines like to say, they always deal with like worse. Yeah. And then, I mean, the army had similar situations with some of them. So like, I have to give respect to some of the army guys. Cause like they, they, they definitely had some, some janky gear as well. But then some of the army would show up or like the air force would be doing something and they'd have these giant, uh, what were their big vehicles there? The, they had like a, they had a, I had a, a crazier, like an upgraded version of the MRAP and they, no, not MATVs. Um, Oh, to come to me eventually, but they would hop out of their trucks and they had like ladder that stepped down. They could go down the stairs. It's like all electronic, all bougie. bougie. And then they'd set like, we'd be sleeping on the ground with like just our tarps. And then they would have these cots. I kid you not. I was like, I was trying to figure out how I could get one from them. Cause you know, they only used them like once or twice on their deployment. It was like a cot that, you know, like a race cot and it had a tent that opened up over the top of it. It had a small like little AC system built into it. So it had like a little, like you turn a fan on. So like they'd get air in there. I'm like, it had a little steps that like you'd step up into it. So when you're on the ground out of it. Yeah. And like you're laying on the ground and they're sleeping in these raised canopy beds with like stairs. So you didn't have to get your boots dirty when you're getting out. I was oh like, that is some bougie stuff. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah, for weapons and things like that, you know, we were, you're of course, like we had our typical setups that we bring from mm-hmm. home, um, our M4s and all those, but the Lithuanians, they always had like fun, like G30. They always had like fun. Well, because a lot of firearms are built over there. Yeah, like a they, lot of the good stuff is like from that area. Yeah, the the those guys would show up with some cool setups, like mm-hmm. MP5s, G36s, and yeah, and they'd let you shoot them. But then the Afghan army, my gosh, I don't know how they hit anything. Like AKs, they're so much more accurate than people give credit for. An AK, a well, like an AK is probably one of the best like rifles out there. Like you. They're very accurate, very reliable. They're and but that's pretty much what they have. So like when you get these images of like movies where they're just like spraying, yeah, like that's how some of them shoot. But when used properly, those things are incredibly accurate. But like the ones our guys would get, so like our uh, Afghan police or Afghan army, we'd go to the ranges with them, and their like butt stocks would be taped on with duct tape. Their sights would be like loose. Oh, it's like the whole weapon was falling apart, you know? Yeah. And like, no kidding, not going to hit anything. And it's just like, as you shoot, the whole thing's like wobbling apart. <laughs> so, so yeah, the Afghans had some pretty janky stuff, but mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure by the end, the Afghan army, they looked like they got a pretty decent amount of gear and like new rifles. And yeah. by the time we left, it's, wasn't the same Afghan looking army that I saw when we were working with them. Yeah, quite a few things were left behind yeah, they, they, in those countries well, at this so, point. So sad. Like, yeah. So. There's, I mean, I freaking saw dogs were being left behind. So, yeah, what was, I mean, for you, what was your perspective on, like, the way it ended? Like, I know, like, well, it's, it's interesting kind of hearing from. I don't know, because, like, there was never, like, an end, really. It kind of yeah. just, like, it, it fizzled out more than, like, it ended. 
in my opinion. Yeah. Like when other wars ended, I feel like they ended with like a, a treaty was signed. Like mm-hmm. if you look back on history, like treaties were signed for wars or like we pulled out of Vietnam. Like yeah. it was a hard, like it's yeah. over. Yeah. And like even in Japan, like treaties were signed in World War II. Right. Hard end to it. A with, hard end, like a date. With like a like you have a You have a date for mm-hmm. those to end. But like I don't feel like that with these. I feel like it just kind of like, just like a, just wait till end. the news cycle stops talking about it and yeah, and that's how I felt about it. Yeah, I would say yeah. It's it's I'm always curious about kind of like from a some someone's perspective outside the military, like the way they watched all that yeah. unfold. Like what's their impression on the military and like how it was handled. I never felt that there was like a true outlined goal. Yeah, like it. It felt like at first it was like, oh, Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, like, we got to get them out. And then they were gone. And then it was kind of just still, like, yeah. rolling. And it was like, oh, now we're bringing freedom. And it was like, well, they kind of had freedom before. Like, in the 80s, they had a lot of freedom. And Definitely. then things changed. I don't know. I never really, like, fully, never really fully saw, like, a big picture of, like, what was hmm. the long-term goal yeah, and that always kind of surprised me. Yeah, it was it was a tough way to watch the way that all that all kind of came to a close. Yeah, but it was. Yeah, it was sad. I think, I mean, yeah, but, but I think you're right. There, there was, as as time went on, you kind of have to start asking yourself, like, what is our what is our role here? Like, do we really have a or do we have a mission to like to actually be here? Mm. Or at this point, should things be handed over to this country to manage itself? You know, and I think there was probably at some point somebody said. This country will not manage itself. The Afghan army will not be able to take the reins from us. Hmm. So what do you do then? Yeah. You have so much time and money invested. Yeah. What do you cut your losses and. Yeah. That's where it's tough. Like, how do you feel about that? Like, do you feel like we should have still been there in in a stronger force? And maybe if we're there in a stronger force, it would be safer for everyone there. All the soldiers and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. This is this is a really tough topic because it's like if it would have ended differently, I think there would have been different opinions on everything, you know. Because um, yeah, no, it's it's one of those things. Like I, you, you, your goal is not to be there forever. It's yeah. and we don't have the resources. It's not our role to sit there and help a country keep its democracy and freedoms for the people. Mm-hmm. We helped get that set up, um, and then at some point you have to you have to hand things over. So like, and we spent years and years training the Afghan army and doing all this stuff and like really building infrastructure and it, there was going to come a point when it had to go to them. And I think obviously there's a lot of other factors that are happening within the Afghan army and the police and that, that probably resulted in the quick fall that it did. And that's, I mean, that's a conversation we could have a easy, easy two, three hour talk about. Um, Cause yeah, there's like, obviously there's, this isn't a very simple thing, but yeah, there's there's a point we had to just leave, and you'd hope that you had trained folks, but there was obviously some other other things at play that. I think when you think about it, mostly you think about like the fumbles along the way, like things like Benghazi, where obviously that was in the Middle East, but yeah. it wasn't exactly the same. But like those kind of like fumbles in, of leadership come to mind more often than like like yeah. there was no like publicity of like small victories of any sort it feels like osama bin laden was one but that was i mean he was already pretty much doing nothing at that time anyways saddam hussein was one but that was pretty much right off the kick 
Yeah, I think, well, I think a lot of us, especially like the the guys and girls that were, were like I said, that were over there, I think that one thing that hurts the most is just like how we, we left a lot of people high and dry out there, like our interpreters. Like these are people, a lot of them, these are, these are guys that we became very close to, like very friends. We mm-hmm. have each other's numbers and like they stayed there and they really put their lives on the line, like risked it, them and their families to actually work with the, the NATO forces and support. And so they, but they were given a promise, you know, that we would help get them visas and stuff to get out of the country. Cause the second we leave, these dudes were dead. Like, no, like they were going to be hunted down. They knew that they were and with the And the fact that we started denying these guys visas who had done their parts was probably one of the, like, it was like the guys and girls that went over there and served, they were like, you know, we had this promise and we were supporting, we had these other people working with us and we promised them these things. And so when we pulled out and we didn't fulfill that promise at a, like, you know, as crappy as it all ended and as tough as that all as a watch, especially having been there and lost friends over there to know that the, we couldn't at least fulfill the agreement to the people who worked with us was like, like just the last knife in their back, you know, for it all. It's yeah. like, we should have at least before we made that hasty pullout, gotten all of our interpreters out there that we had agreements with. And now, right now it's almost impossible. You know, all the guys I knew we were, they were like scrambling to get their interpreters out and they had to do with like private funded contractors and things like you couldn't rely on the government that said they were going to do it to do it. And it just, it's like almost like they were just trying to hope that there was going to be this really bad window of what happened and they're going to hope people just forgot about it. You know, like the media would stop talking about it. This would just become like a poor moment in history. And then we would just kind of ignore it and pretend like it never happened. I would, I would hope that NATO's job would have taken over from there at least. Yeah. It seems like that's Mm. exactly a NATO thing that they should be doing. To have like, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. You know, like, okay, the U S army helped enough. Now NATO, which is what eighty percent U.S. Army, yeah, eighty percent U.S. soldiers, could take it from there and keep the peace. I mean, Afghanistan is kind of a tough one because <laughs> Russia, look at its history. <laughs> Russia tried. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's Russian tanks sitting around in the desert. I think still. Yep. I'm sure you felt some historic Russian presence there. Also, like I said, one of the bases was next to sat next to Alexander the Great's one of his little castles. Oh yeah. So you look at there's history there. From back to the Alexander the Great. And many people tried to get in there and yeah. just nobody could. So I know at the end of it, it looks like, man, America, we played a huge role in this and we were giving way more than everybody else mm-hmm. and just not sustainable, you know? Yeah. And the whole weapons of mass destruction thing. Yeah. was questionable. Man. More, more talks, man. We could, we could go on I this know, one. <laughs> I know. I, I have a lot hey, of interest you, in this kind it, of stuff. Yeah. If, if, if the audience wants to do a second podcast yes. where we just talk on this. Give us a thumbs up and we'll, we'll dig deeper. Well, even we could go <laughs> deeper than that because I know you have World War II history knowledge that you're really passionate about. And yeah. You were, you said you were on the beaches in France and Normandy, right? You so, yeah, we're uh, a lot of the sites. Actually, I haven't actually made it to Normandy Beach yet. Okay. I do. There's part of Holdfast with the artwork that I really want to be intentional with is just retelling military heritage and history because, you know, we, as we move forward and we, uh, uh, some like, so yeah, as we move forward, I just always want to be intentional that you're kind of retelling those stories mm-hmm. and it's part of a generational responsibility to help carry like the sacrifice, the stories of those who've gone before us and the sacrifice and the history and the major locations forward. You know, this, especially for the Marine Corps heritage and history is really important. Mm-hmm. And with the artwork I do, I feel like that's just one way I can connect with uh, the history and kind of retell it through my artwork 
And with the hopes of one day hold fast, being able to do these trips where we go to some of these historic locations. And yeah, you know, some of them I've been to not quite, not Normandy yet, not yeah. Dave, Dave, not that beach yet, but we'd like to start taking on um, doing a project, uh, referring to it right now as like the military art heritage project where we basically send a bunch of artists, not just like painters, but say it's photographers, videographers, uh, who have different backgrounds and we take them to some of these significant historical mis- military historic sites and we just kind of interact with them and create content that can really help communicate those historic stories to like this generation to uh, go forward. So in some small capacity, just being intentional, yeah. about being storytellers. Well, and history is a weird one too, because I, I always look at history of like, okay, but who's retelling of the story is this? Mm-hmm. How like history is written is, by the victors <laughs> the perspective for a reason. All, yeah. And it's all very like, mm. As I get older, I realize you got to look at things a little differently because as I live through things, I realize how they're going to look in five years. Mm. You know, like as you live through historical events, you're like, wait, my kids might not hear about this the same way that I actually lived through it. You know, like 2020 and stuff like that. Like it may be told very skewed in history books. (laughs) Same with like Afghan and Iraq. Like it may be told way differently than what you saw Mm. in Five years. I mean, I I spent some time with my uncle who went through um, Vietnam. Yeah, and that is told in five different ways. Mm. And especially if you're a Vietnamese person, it's told very differently. So it's like I get very skeptical on the telling of history. Yeah, and as it goes farther back, you realize how much more skewed it could be. Yep. But that gets a little bit conspiratorial. Yeah, that's. I, I mean, but I mean, you're 100 right though. Like, there's there's a our our perspective, our angle, and all, all it it all influences our opinion and the way we tell it. You know, it's like we you look at like the the Taliban. You know, you got these young guys fighting you, and you can't help but kind of understand why. Like, had you imagine being a young kid growing up in Afghanistan, being taught like one thing your whole life, and that's how you're going to grow up thinking, and then you're of course you're going to go fight the Americans, you know, you're going to go yeah. like, that's your life. And it's like when you're, when you're, you're funneled into that mind and that environment and you grow like, you know, we were in Afghanistan for 20 years. There was enough time for somebody to be born, watch maybe their dad get killed, grow up and be a firefighting, like be of age to firefight or be yeah. in a fire. It's like, I'm not surprised. Like you're fighting generations at that point. Well, there's people that weren't even born before the, the U S got there. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were born into a place of just conflict, like. conflict, no, like yeah. no peace whatsoever. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That's absolutely wild so like to you, think about. You're not, you're, you, I mean, you see, it's like an ideology. It's, it's more than just, it's more than just a fight. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's so much more, uh, like a belief and a core. Yeah. Like that's why we had fighters coming from all over the country to fight us, like all over that area, like Pakistan. I mean, fighters were pouring in that country just so that they could participate like the jihad you know the the whole like the war against against the west and so it was it was very much it was a very deep spiritual thing for them Mm -hmm. to be fighting so it's like i said it's yeah well imagine their perspective at all (laughs) to end this off a little bit more lighthearted yeah um, the coffee was good it kept me the coffee was great let's end this a little bit more lighthearted with Mm. some more um interesting talk this this is actually connects to you a lot so the Navy has been talking a lot about aliens. 
Oh, and they're okay. talking about them being in the water. I've seen a little bit of this now. Okay, but they're so talking about them being in the water, in I the might, ocean. You might, you might have to educate me more on this, Cooper. I just, it's just interesting because it's like, it, it's oceanic research, mm. military, and it seems like something you would be almost called in on. This is like very recent stuff, right? This is like week. This yeah, week. this is something like, I've, I've seen this stuff pop, popping up and I mean, I haven't. But they're saying that like, you know, they'll follow the, the spacecraft or unidentified flying object, whatever UAP they call them now or something. Oh, yeah. We got a new name for them. And then they'll just drop into the water, descend like 5,000 feet a second, and then just like, blup, and gone. I mean, imagine the ocean. Like we talked, like we were talking before, the ocean is considered 97% unexplored. Yeah. And there's parts of the ocean. It's easier to get to the moon than some of the deepest parts of the ocean. And probably all the explored stuff is coastline. Right. Uh, yeah. so, so we're pretty limited on what we can actually see. So like, would it be unfathomable for something to drop in the ocean, go to some of the deepest parts and we never see it? Yeah, probably. Pacific Ocean is pretty big, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's spots. I think there's one spot in the Pacific Ocean, what do they call it, the Nemo Point, where you're closer to the International Space Station than you are any other land. The Nemo Point? Something like that. I don't know if it's Well, it's like in the middle of the Pacific Ocean where you're, the space station is closer to you when it goes by. Than anything else around you. Interesting. Than any other piece of land. I gotta look. Yeah, I'll have to look in this. I've never heard something of like that. Point. But so yeah. you're so you're saying the Navy knows about some. They said that they followed them in mm-hmm. in planes and stuff, and then they've watched them drop into the water. So that sounds like something of research to you. But it sounds like you already know something, and you just can't tell me. Oh yeah, because <laughs> you know me and the Navy, we're so we're such good friends. We all. We hang I, out. I understand if people can't tell me stuff. I you also got to remember, like, that can't. I've never been on a ship. Yeah. I've never, like, I never wore a Navy uniform my entire time. I literally was in Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. It's the weirdest thing. People have been like, so you were in the, you were in the military? It's like, I was in the Navy. And they're like, oh, just the Navy. And <laughs> Did you hear, um, there's, like, a study that recently came out that everybody that spent time on a Navy ship, like, 99% have daughters. I got a daughter, but I was never on a ship. But like, it's like a thing. They're like, "What? What is the ship? The ship just mutate. have putting out that influencing those." Yeah, I was like, "Oh, that's an interesting one." The, but yeah. So wait, tell me more about what's the most recent thing you've heard about as far as well. Now happen. there was a whistleblower that just came out like mm-hmm. a week ago, which is questionable in itself because if you're a whistleblower, you have to clear it with the the company that you're whistleblowing against so like he was a researcher for this stuff but he had to like get the okay to be a whistleblower i guess hmm. because if you were just a whistleblower because you want to be then you end up like julian Assange and you're in <laughs> yeah, hiding yeah. in i don't know where he's he's in like london right now in like a yeah, whistleblower yeah whatever not, you not end the up u.s like hanging a, out yes you end up like a whistleblower they're actually probably going to extradite him back to the u.s julian yeah. Assange in I the next be few months i mean he he came out with a lot of stuff against what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. I think he had like 80,000 documents about all kinds of crazy stuff. But regardless, there was a whistleblower about forces, like all kinds of different stuff. And he says that they have crafts, they have bodies, they have everything. Would I be surprised? No. I'm like, I mean, obviously I'm not, I'm not high up Navy. Yeah. I was never really on ships out there, but like, do I think there's a lot of stuff that's not being told to us? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't know if you had any seen anything crazy. I know that once, like, 
nuclear talk starts to pop up a little bit more, it starts to become more prevalent that they see things. Mm. Like they said after World War II, the amount of sightings like rose drastically because people suspect that we have like now this technology that can destroy ourselves. Yeah. So now they're like intervening. Like the guy with the octopus. Mm-hmm. Once the shark comes in, that's when he intervenes. Because he has to play a role in stopping us from... Yeah, because we're too stupid. Yeah. <laughs> silly these silly humans. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Just thought that was fun. But we'll end it off there. We've been going for a while. Well, I, I hope there's something out there. It would make things a lot more interesting. It'd be cool. It would be really cool. It'd be cool. So I'm I'm rooting for it. Yep. I'm not I'm not hoping it's not there. All right. Well, we'll end this off. Um, they can follow you at the Hold Fast Collective to see some of your art. Go check it out, guys. Um, I hope to have you back on once you have some more research to tell us. Maybe. Yeah, man. We'll we'll see how the next couple weeks go. A lot yep. a lot could change. We're but going to get a drift car this week. But <laughs> we'll start shredding some tires here pretty soon. Yep. Or I'll be bugging Cooper for more help on the car. Exactly. All right, guys. That'll do it. Thank you so much for watching. And we'll see you, you next me, time, Cooper, brother. Till next time. So that's a site where, like, you can kind of see how the reef was damaged oh, by, yeah. like, they dropped a piece of dynamite on the reef mm-hmm. and then blew it so that they could just, like, kill all the fish and they float to the surface. But, you know, that's what it looks like when you just blow a reef up. I didn't even get to ask you about all the nuclear bomb testing in the water. Oh, don't get me started on nuclear bomb testing. I mean, we tested them all in the ocean, Dude. which seems questionable. <laughs> You think that killed some stuff? Yeah. Then they were like, yeah, no, maybe you we should try them in the long-term desert. Radiation? Yeah, like Bikini Atoll and stuff like yep. that. They said that's the that's the conspiracy behind SpongeBob. Bikini Atoll. Yeah, it's Bikini Bottom where they test nuclear radiation. And where there's they all test, these like and there's all these that are lo- talking now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of makes sense. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.